You're listening to Season 4 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans. We analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode-by-episode and movie-by-movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 4.2, The Inescapable Mobius Loop, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and no, the number you are seeing is not a glitch, it really is that long. And I'm Nina, not sure what to call myself now that I am certainly not a Gundam noob. Apprentice, acolyte, Are you accepting suggestions? Yeah. Should they etch you on Twitter? (laughs) Uh, If you have any suggestions, feel free. I can't guarantee that I will use them, but I look forward to uh, seeing y'all's ideas. Her Twitter handle will be in the show notes. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 499 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Stop Motion Gumpla, Songbird of Xeon, Gem C, Chad B, Grumo57, Kyle D, Pedro AS, Michael W, Adam B, this kind of racy one that I'm going to let slide, Onan Rules, Morgan E, Dylan S, Jonathan S, Toast Malone, that one made me laugh, CTB Twister, Nobody, Ryan G, AJG, Nate H, Jacob S, Thomas C, Adam M, Drupgu, Mark H, and Luke Z. This podcast would not be possible without your support. Remember, folks, there is a deadline if you want to receive this year's limited edition pin. Be a Patreon supporter at the $5 per month tier or higher by December 1st and receive an exclusive enamel pin. For pictures, check out our social media or our Patreon posts. On top of our annual limited edition pin, which always looks really cool, patrons, depending on tier, get a shout-out on the podcast, recognition on our website, early access to episodes, monthly bonus content, access to an exclusive Discord, and more. You can check out all the Patreon rewards and join today at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. You heard that right, we added a new benefit. Starting this season, patrons at all tiers get early access to episodes, one whole week ahead of the normal release. We are always looking for ways to show our appreciation for the supporters who keep Mobile Suit Breakdown independent and ad-free, and we hope you all enjoy this new perk. This week, we recap and discuss CCA, or Char's Counterattack, but we made some changes to our usual recap and talkback format. Because of the mixed-up production schedule for this season, these talkbacks feel a bit different. For one thing, rather than recap the whole movie in one go, we've split it into five acts. After recapping one act, we discuss just that piece of the movie, before moving on to the next recap and next piece of talkback. But we've also seen the movie multiple times already. While I've tried to preserve my initial reactions, I am talking based off of my notes from our first watch through, the talkback is obviously going to be affected by the amount of time we've had to think about, 
rewatch, and discuss the movie. This also means that even though we've split the talk back into sections, sometimes our discussion will, when it makes sense to, incorporate events and information from the movie as a whole. So if you like to watch before listening, definitely watch the whole movie before listening to any of this episode. The other important note is that since the rest of the episodes this season feature interviews with extensive discussion of certain facets of CCA, you may notice gaps in what we talk about this week. We're trying to avoid repeating discussions that are going to crop up in those later episodes. So if you find yourself wondering, why didn't they talk about X? It's likely we address it later. And if you get to the end of the season and we still haven't talked about it, well, that's on us. Before we get to talking about the movie, I have a little bit of research about the background behind how and when the movie got made. This is a research piece about the history behind the production of Shar's Counterattack and about the other versions of the movie that almost got made, or that did get made in a different kind of way. I call it The Other Counterattacks. But before I begin with this research, I want to acknowledge that this piece is only possible thanks to the efforts of many passionate, knowledgeable, and tireless Gundam fans working over many years to investigate, discover, translate, and publish the information that went into this piece. It is impossible to thank everyone whose work contributed to what we now know about the other counterattacks and the making of this movie, but I want to give special thanks to Mark Simmons, Zionic Scanlations, Tom Asnable, Luna, and Tirhan. Without their assistance, this segment would have been shorter, less detailed, and occasionally wrong. <laughs> Any errors that remain are entirely my own. The story behind Char's counterattack begins, in a sense, in July 1984, when anime director Tomino Yoshiyuki submitted his proposal for a new Gundam TV show. MSB listeners and Gundam fans should already be quite familiar with Tomino by this point, but for anyone who is just now joining us, Tomino is a now legendary anime director widely credited as the most important single figure in the creation of the Gundam mega franchise. In 1979, he oversaw the production of the original Mobile Suit Gundam, also known as First Gundam, as its lead director. He wrote Gundam tie-in novels, he directed Gundam movies. He went on to produce other giant robot-type shows while the Gundam brand lay fallow, but after just a few years, he returned to the Universal Century, the fictional world he had helped shape half a decade prior. So in 1984, Tomino prepared a project outline for a new Gundam show. This pitch would, eventually, become the TV show Zeta Gundam, consisting of 50 episodes, aired between March 1985 and February 1986. However, at this early stage, it bore a slightly different title. Zeta Gundam, Shars Counterattack, or Zeta Gundamu, Gyakushu no Sha. The outline is sparse, but it suggests that Shar Aznable would have played a larger role than he did in the version of Zeta that was eventually produced. Shar would have gathered a group of rebels made up from the former heroes of the White Base in order to resist the increasingly corrupt and oppressive Earth Federation. He would have been defeated, but the series would end on a hopeful note as he passed the burden of leadership onto the young Camille Badan. Much of what was in this original project proposal was dropped before Zeta made it to air, including the Shar's counterattack subtitle. 
but clearly the name, Char's Counterattack, stuck with Tomino. In fact, around this time, Tomino began writing a serialized novel set in the far future of the Gundam universe. Due to a copyright issue, the novel went through several names. Today, we know this novel as simply Gaia Gear, but when the first chapter was published in the April 1987 issue of the anime magazine New Type, it bore the full title Mobile Suit Gaia Gear. Yet, even that was not its original full title. Before its initial release, there was a teaser advertising the upcoming project, which gave its title as Mobile Suit Gaia Gear, Char's Counterattack. This was only a year before the movie, Char's Counterattack, hit theaters. The use of the name Char's Counterattack for Gaia Gear, a separate project with no meaningful relationship to the movie, raises an important question. When was the movie's title actually settled? The decision to cut only the Char's Counterattack part of Gaia Gear's title around April 1987 suggests that it may have been right then, but we'll talk more about the timing in a moment. For now, let's jump back to the other project that was almost called Char's Counterattack, by which I mean Zeta Gundam. Zeta was successful enough to give rise to an immediate sequel, Gundam Double Zeta, comprising 47 episodes and airing between March 1986 and January 1987. However, First Gundam had been a landmark for anime. Its success had redefined multiple industries. It had triggered a boom in model kit sales that allowed sponsor Bandai to sell 30 million kits in the early 80s. It was so popular that riots broke out in toy stores. By comparison, Zeta and Double Zeta were not living up to those lofty expectations. But they were TV shows. First Gundam had also started as a TV show, and as a TV show, it had failed, at least as far as its sponsors were concerned. But it was re-released as a series of movies, and in that format, it was a triumph. Now, in the face of yet another underperforming TV series, the powers that be decided to try different formats. Movies had worked before. Why not see if that lightning would strike again? At some point, probably starting during Double Zeta's production in 1986, Tomino and his team began putting together a pitch for a new Gundam motion picture, which at this point was probably not called Char's Counterattack. Early design documents from the pre-production stage list the project as Gundam the Motion Picture, or as Hi-S Gundam, sometimes Hi-S Gundam the Motion Picture. The pitch was then presented to a committee of sponsors, the Gundam Movie Production Committee, probably comprised of representatives from toymaker Bandai, advertising agency Sotsu, movie distributor Shochiku, and television network Nagoya Broadcasting Network, all longtime partners of Anime Studio Sunrise. The committee demanded some changes, the main one being the removal of Amuro's longtime girlfriend, Beltorchka Irma. Once those were made, the second draft was accepted and went into production. I have not been able to find a definitive answer for when the pitch was prepared or when it was presented to the sponsors, but thanks to hints in interviews and dates on early pre-production art dug up by the foremost experts from the English-speaking side of the Gundam fandom, 
we can make some reasonably confident guesses about the timeline for the movie's production. First, it's widely believed that Shar was originally intended to appear in the latter half of Gundam Double Zeta, but that he was removed from that show to make it easier, or perhaps just more dramatic, for him to appear in the movie. According to this theory, Shar's intended role devolved onto the young Xeon officer, Glemmy Toto. This theory has been floating around for a long time, but thanks to a recently discovered interview with Zeta and Double Zeta writer Endo Akinori, there is now good reason to believe it. In the interview, Endo stated that when the Glemmy Toto character was designed, the staff was aware of a possibility that Shar might not appear in Double Zeta, that Glemmy was drawn with that possibility in mind, and that his role did ultimately expand significantly beyond what was originally envisioned. Early drawings of Glemmy by Double Zeta character designer Kitazume Hiroyuki are dated February 1986, suggesting that by that point, Tomino was already thinking about the story for Shar's counterattack, but that the story was not yet settled. Let me indulge in a brief digression here. I don't think I've said this on the podcast, but in that same interview with Endo, he also more or less confirmed Nina's theory from episode 3.11 that Glemmy Toto's surname came from the Japanese toilet manufacturing company Toto. Back to the movie. The earliest dated design document we've managed to find is Tomino's preliminary storyboards, which are dated to December 6, 1986. That matches a set of early mecha design documents drawn by Nagano Mamoru, who would shortly afterward be fired from the production for unknown reasons, or step down of his own volition for unknown reasons, depending on which account you hear. These early rough drafts are dated December 86 and January 87. If all of those dates are accurate, then this indicates a range of about 10 months from February to December 1986, during which the movie's basic story would have come together. It was then in the first half of 1987 that the staff of artists gathered around Tomino worked out the basic look of the movie. Nagano's departure from the project left the mecha design aspect as yet uncompleted, and so a host of other artists moved in to fill the gaps including participating in a competition to design the new Gundam. At the same time, character designer Kitazume Hiroyuki, who was also the Double Zeta character designer, joined the movie in February 1987. By mid-March, he had prepared designs for most of the movie's main characters. In March and April, these went through a series of revisions. Some characters would not be finalized until as late as August, but it was during this March to April period that most of the characters took on their final forms. It was also during this period that we see the last design for Beltorchka, which is dated March 13th, as well as the first design for the character who would replace her, dated April 3rd. Since the main thing we know about the first pitch meeting is that it resulted in Beltorchka being removed from the story, we can guess with a great deal of confidence that the first meeting took place sometime in this three-week window at the end of March. By this point, the story must have been largely settled, because in May 1987, just about a month after that first meeting, five months after Gundam Double Zeta wrapped up its run on TV, and roughly a year before the movie would hit theaters, the anime magazine Animeju published the first chapter of a serialized novel based on the upcoming movie, and it was called Mobile Suit Gundam High Streamer. 
I mentioned earlier that some of the production art was labeled High S Gundam, almost certainly High Streamer. Written by Tomino, High Streamer is both a novelization of the events of the movie and a prequel to it. It starts earlier and makes explicit much of the implied backstory from the movie. Tomino must have been intensely busy in those years. Besides writing the aforementioned Gaia gear and overseeing the end of production on Double Zeta and the beginning of production on Char's Counterattack, he also found time to write High Streamer and another different Char's Counterattack tie-in novel that would be published during the lead-up to the theatrical release. It remains kind of an open question how involved Tomino was with Double Zeta. In an interview, producer Uchida Kenji suggested that Tomino had largely entrusted Double Zeta to the younger staff, working under his nominal supervision. Uchida goes on to imply that Tomino, a notorious perfectionist and workaholic, was unsatisfied with how that show turned out. Perhaps for Char's counterattack, he wanted to take a more active role in shaping the new project. The serialized novel High Streamer ran in the pages of Animeju for a year. The final chapter appeared in the April 1988 issue, one month after Char's counterattack hit theaters. But it was also compiled and published separately as a set of three novels, released between December 1987 and March 1988. These were dubbed Char's counterattack and cover the events before and during the movie, albeit with some variances. When these novels were reprinted in 2002, they returned to the old High Streamer name. It's all very confusing, but for our purposes, I'm just going to refer to this novel version as High Streamer, and the movie as Char's Counterattack. So while Char's Counterattack picks up in the middle of the action and relies largely on implication and suggestion to convey information about this conflict, truly dedicated fans, as well as anyone who had a subscription to Animeju, would have gone into the theater in 1988 significantly better prepared to understand the story than audiences today. About that name, High Streamer. As I mentioned, Tomino's early storyboards and those early mecha design documents, the ones from December 1986, are labeled as being for High S Gundam, or High S Gundam The Moving Picture. It is hard to imagine that High S refers to anything but High Streamer, and so I think we can assume safely that High Streamer started out as the working title for the movie, with the final name, Char's Counterattack, settled sometime after Animeju announced the tie-in novel. This roughly corresponds to when Gaia Gear dropped the Char's Counterattack title, and to when Beltorchka was removed from the script. All of which suggests that the name Char's Counterattack was first attached to the movie at that first pitch meeting in late March, or possibly at a follow-up meeting in late April. This would explain why the Animeju serialized novel ran under the name High Streamer initially, but was then changed to Char's Counterattack when it was republished. The name change probably happened after the magazine was already in production. Of course, this confusion of names gets worse because of that other, different novel offering an alternative take on the story of Char's counterattack that Tomino wrote and published around the same time. This one entitled Mobile Suit Gundam Char's Counterattack Beltorchka's Children. But let's just call it Beltorchka's Children. When I say that it was published around the same time, I really do mean that. 
High Streamer Part 2 and Beltorchka's Children were both released in the same month and by rival publishing companies, which must have been fun for everyone involved. In any event, by the time Shars Counterattack began showing in theaters on March 12, 1988, there were already two different novelizations of the story available on the Japanese market. Beltorchka's Children was published on February 2, 1988, and the third high streamer novel, which covers the events of the movie, was published sometime in March. I wasn't able to pin down the exact date of publication. Most sources just say March 1988, and the two I found that did specify a day listed March 1st and March 15th. Either one of those might be true, or they might just be placeholders entered into databases by someone who didn't know anything more specific than March. But whichever is true, the novel was either available two weeks before the movie's premiere, or just slightly afterward. While each novel offers slightly different takes on the story, the mobile suits, the characters, and so on, Beltorchka's Children is, I think, much more interesting for our purposes. While High Streamer expands on the movie, Beltorchka's Children is instead based on the original pitch that Tomino created, without the concessions to the desires of the sponsors that were made for the movie version. It also includes different mobile suits, some of which have endured as fan favorites despite their relatively obscure origins. I'm not going to dive too much into Beltorchka's children now, since we haven't even covered the events of the movie yet, but I'll talk more about it later on in Season 4. Our focus remains on the movie Char's Counterattack, but as was the case with the draft script that we discussed in Episode 3.47, this retelling of the story in a different format gives us a valuable alternate perspective. And there will be times when the difference between the two versions can enrich our understanding of the movie. After all, you never know when some tenuous-sounding theory is going to find unexpected support in the pages of Beltorchka's Children. We are about to start our coverage of the movie Char's Counterattack itself and the events that take place therein. But before we do that, we need to take a moment to talk about name pronunciation because this movie introduces a whole lot of new names for which the pronunciation may not be immediately obvious or for which there are divergent pronunciations within the English-speaking Gundam fandom. So, as we've done in the past, we are going to talk through those and make some decisions about how we want to pronounce those names during Season 4. We may not reach the same decisions that you personally have, but we hope you will understand. Now, of course, we are doing this before we actually recap the events of the movie, so if you haven't watched the movie and you're relying on us to tell you what happens in it, these names are not going to be familiar to you. But hopefully you can follow along, and if you have watched the movie, of course, you know who all of these people are. People and mobile suits and ships and mobile armor. All right, let's do it. The first on my list is arguably the main character of the movie, teal-haired young woman, Quest Pariah. Sometimes people pronounce this name Kes. The Japanese is Kuesu Pariah. The way that it's romanized is Q-U-E-S-S which sometimes ends up making a hard K sound rather than a U sound. But given how it's written out in Japanese and the way the characters in the movie say it, 
Quest makes more sense. I am in agreement. Quest's father is similarly easy because he is pretty definitely named after a real person. Adenauer Pariah almost certainly takes his name from Konrad Adenauer, a German politician who was active some decades prior to the movie's release. And the Japanese for Adenauer Pariah is Adenawa. Right. The only difference in how we're pronouncing it is we are pronouncing the letter R at the end, which you often don't get in Japanese. This next one is a little more complicated. Amuro's girlfriend, the Federation engineer whose name is spelled C-H-A-N and could be either Chan, which is how we would normally say that name if it was written in English like that. It could be Chan or it could be Chen, which is a little closer to the way the people say it in the movie. And the Japanese here is Chen. Ah, okay. Interesting then that it's written in English as Chan. Yeah. <laughs> Chan. That is interesting. I had noticed that in the movie, Amuro says it more like Chen. On my part, just out of force of habit, based on the way it's spelled in English, I have been calling this character Chan for a really long time. It's going to be pretty hard for me to switch over to the more correct Chen. We might just be a little inconsistent on that one. Uh, bear with us. <laughs> Similar note on the name of the mobile armor, uh, the Alpha A-Z-I-E-R-U in English. This is something that not only did I mess up personally in some prior recording that we've done with interviews with guests and stuff, but I also think I told other people the wrong thing and made them mess it up too. So this is entirely on me. The alpha part is easy because it actually uses the Greek character alpha. I have been saying alpha azieru because of that I-E in the way it's spelled in English. In the Japanese, it's very clearly ajiru. So it should be Alpha Aziru. My bad. Entirely my fault. Moving on to mobile suits. On the Federation side, we have the main grunt mobile suit, the sort of mint-colored J-E-G-A-N, or Jagan. This one is decently straightforward. That's how I would naturally pronounce that based on the way it's written, and that matches the Japanese. I do think there is probably a fun joke being made here because the Jagan is like a midpoint between the gym of First Gundam and the Gundam. The Gan at the end of Jagan is the same Gan as in Gandamu or Gundam. And then the J, I think, is a shortening for like James, whereas the Jim, although it's spelled GM, is pronounced like the name Jim, which again is short for James. Anyway, moving on. Another mobile suit on the Londo Bell side is spelled capital R, lowercase e, capital G, capital Z. This is short for Refined Gundam Zeta because it is a refined version of the Zeta Gundam from Zeta Gundam. In the Japanese, it is Rigazi. Rigazi. I might slip up and call it the Rigazi sometimes, but it really is Ri. Rigazi. I just avoid the issue by trying not to say the mobile suit names if I can avoid it. <laughs> that's, um, that's going to be very useful for this next one. <laughs> the mobile suit, which is initially piloted by Gune and is spelled J-A-G-D space D-O-G-A. You might think that that is supposed to be 
jagged doga or yagged doga. In the Japanese, it's yakuto, yakuto doga. Now, initially, I thought that the J-A-G-D part of the name came from the German word for hunter or jäger. This is based on some Japanese sources, which do specify that the yakuto part of it comes from a word for hunter. And the word jäger does get used in the names of other mobile suits. However, some of our German-speaking listeners very helpfully corrected me that yakuto, J-A-G-D, is just a German word, although it means hunt instead of hunter. But it was used in the names of what are called tank destroyers or tank hunters, which is probably how it wound up being incorporated into the name of this mobile suit. That German word, spelled J-A-G-D, is pronounced something like Jagd, which makes it very easy to see how the Japanese got Jagdto and how we ended up with the name as it is in English. So the correct pronunciation for this mobile suit's name is probably the Jagd Doga. However, as I am not confident in my German pronunciation, I am resolved to finding ways to never have to say this mobile suit's name. Like I said, I avoid having to say the names. Gune's mobile suit will do <laughs> just fine. It has kind of like a cool, like, beaked helmet thing on it. So we could call it the beaked mobile suit. We could take a page out of the show itself and refer to them by their descriptions. When I first watched this movie, probably 15 years ago now, I was in my head calling it the Jagged Doga. Which, which is, would be a really cool name. Yeah, although objectively the least accurate of all of these pronunciations. That leaves just one more, and that is the name of the Londobel flagship. Rockhylum or Rockhalem? Good question. The Japanese is Ra-Kairamu. I'm pretty confident, based on the way it's pronounced in Japanese and the way it's written, that this is derived from a classical Latin word for the heavens. Interestingly, the English dub for this movie pronounces the ship's name as Ra-Kailum. I find this decision fascinating because it's arguably closer to the classical Latin pronunciation for the word that we think they've borrowed, but it's further from the Kairamu of the Japanese. The way we're saying it, Kailum, feels kind of like a midpoint between those two. I would also like, before we get into the recap, to talk a little bit about a point of confusion for me watching the movie the first few times, and actually not resolved until I just asked Tom about it. But in the movie, in reference to a particular group of Federation soldiers, sometimes you will hear people refer to the Rockhylum, sometimes you will hear people refer to Londo Bell. It's not made very clear that the Rock Hylum and Londobel are not synonymous. The Rock Hylum is a ship, is an individual ship and its complement of shuttles and mobile suits. Londobel is a unit? Yes. Londobel is like a specialized task force. And so is a, is a small fleet, is a group of ships and support vessels and so on. And the Rock Hylum is the flagship of this Londobel task force. If you go into the movie not knowing that already, it can be a little confusing. On a similar note, in covering this movie, we often refer to Neo Zeon, but 
That's not the full official title of this iteration of Neo-Zeon, but the actual full official title of this iteration of Neo-Zeon is never said in the course of the movie. And so, what are we even supposed to do with that? Ignore it. Not something that needs discussion beyond the fact that it's sort of funny. Uh, the new Gundam, because they introduce a new Gundam in every Gundam series or movie, is the new, like the Greek letter new Gundam. <laughs> <laughs> so clever. I think that's all the names we need to cover. Do you have any others? Uh, nope, that is everything. Then I guess we're ready to recap Shara's counterattack. Act 1, Fifth Luna. Neo-Zeon forces, led by Shar Aznabal, are on a mission to drop the asteroid Fifth Luna on Earth. Ships and mobile suits from the Federation's Londobel Task Force fight desperately to stop them. Against the backdrop of a battle already underway, Federation engineer Chen meets with Anaheim Electronics at their base in the lunar city of Von Braun to inspect the latest iteration in the Gundam series of mobile suits. The new Gundam's time has come ready or not. On Earth, a group of young hippies flee through ruined streets. Police in riot gear quickly surround them, clubbing one young woman before picking out the youngest, a girl with turquoise hair. You're Quest Pariah, aren't you? It seems she is the runaway daughter of Federation Minister Adenauer Pariah. Once back at the family's mansion, she is shoved into a car alongside her father and his mistress, as the three of them hasten first to a jet and then to Hong Kong, where they can catch a shuttle to space. Aware of Shar's plan to trigger a new ice age, Adenauer's first priority is escape. Meanwhile, in the midst of a larger battle, Amuro and Shar clash near Fifth Luna. A frustrated Amuro demands to know what Shar is trying to achieve. After all, they used to be on the same side. Shar explains that when the asteroid falls to Earth, Temperatures will drop and Earth will become uninhabitable for humans. The humans living on Earth are selfish and deserve to die, and those who survive will be driven to live in space. You have no right to do this, Amaro declares, appalled. But Shar believes it is his destiny. Before their conflict can reach its deadly culmination, Shar breaks away to rescue Gune, a young cyber new type whose mobile suit has been damaged in the battle. It is already too late to stop the asteroid's descent. At the spaceport in Hong Kong, the family of Federation Captain Bright Noah, his wife, one-year war veteran Mirai, and their children, Chaman and Hathaway, attempt to board what may be the last shuttle leaving Earth for space now that war has broken out. But even with a letter from a Federation official, the spaceport is not honoring tickets. We soon learn that Adenauer Pariah used his position to jump the line taking the seats meant for Mirai and her children. But Quess's constant goading drives her father's mistress beyond her limit. The older woman elects to risk death rather than put up with Quess. With her seat empty, Adenauer instructs the shuttle staff to allow one member of the Noah family to board. Mirai chooses Hathaway. It's about time he moved to space. With reassurance that she and Chaman will be fine and will see him soon, Mirai sends her son on his way. The Londo Bell forces try to destroy Fifth Luna before it strikes the Earth, but their weaponry isn't strong enough, 
and there isn't enough time. The asteroid and its nuclear engines will strike Lhasa, Tibet, current capital of the Federation government. From inside the shuttle headed for Londinian, Quest can somehow sense that they are directly in the path of Fifth Luna. She shouts directions at the pilots, and when the ship shudders to the right, she is knocked into Hathaway's lap. Pieces of the asteroid break off and strike Earth, the impacts like nuclear bombs mushrooming across the landscape. People and cars go flying. The city, from the famed Potala Palace to the most nondescript little building, is obliterated. Everything in the explosion's path is destroyed as it tears across the mountains. More determined than ever to bring Shar down, Amuro leaves the Londo Bell flagship, Rakhailam, and heads for the moon. He hopes to retrieve the new Gundam and return before Shar's fleet can reach the Neo Zeon base at Sweetwater Colony. All the while, Shar is working on his own plans. He addresses the Neo Zeon forces, his full form projected into space for the entire fleet to see, congratulating them on the successful asteroid drop and expressing his pride in what they've accomplished. I feel like a clown, he mutters, as soon as the cameras turn off, even as the assembled politicians clap him on the back. He changes quickly out of his dress uniform and into a suit, from reluctant general to even more reluctant politician. One of the countless, nameless suits around him expresses concern about Cune's performance, that he might have been over-enhanced at the cyber-new-type lab, but Shar and the Neo-Zeon operation officer Nanai reassure him. As Shar leaves for his next meeting, he and Nanai put an arm around each other, and it's clear their relationship is personal as well as professional. The new Gundam itself is a marvel of engineering. Anaheim's R&D team built the Psychomo system into the frame of the mobile suit. It isn't quite ready, but ready or not, Amuro must take it into the field. The Neo-Zeon fleet is on the move. As Amuro prepares the new Gundam and Chen readies herself to accompany him back to the Rakhailam, Shar's forces launch a sudden raid on the Londo Bell squadron. Breaking through the overwhelmed defenders, they bombard the flagship until Amuro arrives. Unbelievably fast and agile, the new Gundam cuts a swath through the Neo Zeon force. And, exciting Amuro's suspicions, they suddenly fall back. He is right to be wary. The whole thing was a feint, a distraction. Cover to allow Shar, Yune, and a small group of politicians and officials to travel to Londinian unnoticed. I have to start with a quibble, because in the recap that you just gave us, you described one of the Neozean politicians as, quote, a nameless suit. This is the one who was wondering whether Kyune had been enhanced too much, whether he had been made unstable by the cyber new type enhancement process. But I have to tell you, even though it's never said in the movie. <laughs> You're kidding. Because this is Tomino Gundam, he does have a name. And because I'm me, I know that name and remember that it is Kaisus M. Bayer. The other one with the chin strap beard is Horst Harness. What? <laughs> Are you serious? So the, the two guys, the two politicians who are Shar's main like advisors and handlers are named Bayer and Harness. Tomino's not always subtle. When you do it in English, it's more subtle, right? So sneaky. <laughs> I really like this first arc of the movie, which 
when we broke these out into arcs, I didn't consciously do it to make them episode length segments. I just broke them where I thought the narrative of the story naturally broke. But this first arc is just about exactly 22 minutes, which is very close to an episode of anime. The first thing that I thought of as the movie started playing was that I hadn't been entirely sure what to expect in the animation and that it felt very much like an evolution from previous Gundam that we had watched. A lot of the style, a lot of the design is the same, but a lot of it is cleaner, sharper, more detailed. The other thought that I had was to immediately lament that we weren't far enough along that I got to see this when they showed it in theaters here because this must have looked incredible on the big screen. Yeah, it did. It's really beautifully done. And especially the battles, especially the space fighting is gorgeous. I liked what you said about how it was an evolution because you can definitely see different aspects of the prior Gundam shows feeding into this movie. Part of that is because of staff continuity. It's the same character designer as Double Zeta, and so it's easy to see how the design for Quest is a more complicated, a more refined version of the character designs that we saw in Double Zeta. She would not have looked out of place in that show. I think the overall emotional feel of the story and the way the characters play off each other is very Zeta. But the visual construction of shots and scenes reminds me of nothing so much as First Gundam. And I think a lot of that is the influence of Tomino doing the preliminary storyboards for the movie, and it's his specific visual style that is coming through. The pacing is also just so incredibly fast, <laughs> even in this first 20 minutes, really throughout the whole movie. But it doesn't take long to notice. And that fast pacing means that you don't really have time to think about what's happening too deeply because there's no time for things to sink in. You just, you're on to the next thing so quickly that just following what's happening demands the entirety of your attention. This, in my case, had two results. One of them was that when there is a scene that's slower, it has a much stronger impact. Though you notice even the slow scenes often end very abruptly, which helps keep up that pace. And it also makes the experience of watching the movie feel very, uh, you know, for all that we're us and we love overanalyzing uh, a piece of media, it really pulls your focus away from the ideas and into the vibes. <laughs> no yeah. thoughts, only vibes. Which is not unusual for movies, right? But it is unusual for a movie like this one where it is so dense with thoughts. Often that focus on the vibes is to cover up a movie that doesn't have a lot going on. But this one really does. There's so much happening all the time. I think that pace forces the audience to always feel as though they are chasing the movie, which really works because everyone in the movie is chasing Char. Everyone has that feeling of constantly trying to keep up with someone who is ahead of them, but also trying to anticipate their next moves and not really being able to. There was also, for me, a certain amount of confusion early on, even as someone who looks at these shows so deeply and has watched all the previous shows over how much time has elapsed between the movie and the previous series. Uh... When did Shar come back? How did Shar come back? Is Ayug just completely gone now? When did this deep freeze plan happen? 
we are very much in MediaRes. <laughs> and even basic stuff like this is the first mission that this Neozeon fleet has gone on. Char mentions this in that I feel like a clown speech that he gives where he says, like, you've impressed me so much in this, your very first battle. But that is just cast off in passing as he goes along. And the vibe of his organization, it feels much bigger and stronger and better established. But questions like, when did Shar take over Sweetwater? How did that happen? How did he build this fleet? Where did these mobile suits come from? How long has he been sending people to the new type labs? Those questions do not get answered. And I quite like a lot of stories that start this way, that plunge us into the middle of the action, though it's rare to have it happen literally in the middle of a battle that's in the middle of a story that's only going to span a couple of days. Right. The total time that this movie takes is like eight or nine days. It's not a lot of time. That's yet another thing that contributes to that sense of confusion, that sense of never quite being able to find your balance and feel like you completely understand what's going on. Though, as I mentioned, audiences going into the theater in 1988 in Japan could have read the prequel novels, could have read the novelization of the events of the movie already by the time they were sitting in that theater. So they may very well have had a much greater understanding of that background than an audience today in the English-speaking world is able to have. Although that only gets you so far, because as long as we're talking about the timeline, I want to point out one discrepancy between the movie and Beltorchka's children. This scene here in the first act where Bright and Amaro, it's after the asteroid has fallen, they're talking about their failure. They mention that the Federation has been inspecting the colonies for the past two years, that every colony has been inspected, and that somehow Shar was able to build this organization underneath their noses. And that was partly because the people in the colonies were helping to hide his activities. This implies that Amaro and Bright have been part of the Londo Bell task force that whole time. And later on, in a part we haven't quite covered yet, Bright is going to say it's been six months since he last saw Mirai, his wife. In the book, in Beltorchka's Children, Bright joined Londo Bell a month ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. He had been stuck on Earth because the Federation brass did not trust him. They thought he was a new type and you can't trust new types. So they were doing to him what they had done to Amaro and Zeta and had basically sidelined him. And it was only after Shar seized control of Sweetwater that they were like, oh, we need an actual competent military officer who has faced Shar before. We need an experienced captain. <laughs> Send Bright up there to take charge of Londo Bell. This is also part of one of the fundamental elements of the movie and that we've identified of Gundam in general, which is that, okay, yes, we have the bad guy, right? We have Shar here doing the admittedly monstrous thing of dropping an asteroid on a city full of people. And we know that most of the politicians got out. So in a very Gundam-y way, establishing the Federation officials are all corrupt and are only out to save their own skins. They are still resented by the colonies. Uh, their very efforts to maintain control of the colonies through these inspections have only created more resentment. They live pretty explicitly as colonial officials, whether on Earth or in space. We see that a lot of parts of the Earth are badly deteriorated, so they haven't done anything to address that in any way. They have these brutal armored police officers that we see in the beginning 
Their uniforms say HP on them, and I think their vehicle says H police. These are the hunter police. They are specifically hunting down immigrants, people who are not allowed to be on Earth, arresting them brutally and then expelling them. So we see the situation that we often see in Gundam, where we have the leadership of these two nation states, basically, Shars, Neo Zeon on one side, the Federation on the other, their conflict over power, control, wealth, hegemony, and then all of the people getting squeezed between these two forces. Even having cast what Shar is doing as extreme and even evil, the movie doesn't want us to ever accept that that makes the Federation the good guys. Right. Uh, and Anaheim, you know, still gonna Anaheim, still... <laughs> working with both sides, and nobody does anything about it. Amuro doesn't even seem surprised. Yeah, that's just how corporations are, man. I did enjoy the way in which uh, Quest's introduction alongside her father and her father's mistress, Kathy, is kind of contrasted with Mirai Chaman and Hathaway, that we get these two families. And both of them are missing a parent but for vastly different reasons. I thought the airport scene when these two families, when their storylines intersect, is brilliant. I really like this scene because of the way it takes these characters that we have already met, Mirai on the one hand, and then Quest and Adenauer on the other, who, although we've only just met them, we did meet them earlier in the movie, and it brings them together and it uses them to introduce the new character, Hathaway, who we last saw as a child in Zeta Gundam, but we get to see Quest and Hathaway very explicitly looking at each other. And there are all of these different conversations happening in this scene, but we can always see other conversations between these characters, other exchanges in the background, or we know that they're happening just off screen. It also tells us so much about the structure of the Federation, that even these relatively privileged people, Mirai and the Noahs, who are part of the family of this high-ranking Federation army official who are allowed to live on Earth, who have the wherewithal to get a letter of introduction from this John Bauer guy, whoever he is, and yet they are nothing in the face of someone with actual power, like Adonai Pariah. Can we stop for a moment and acknowledge that Mirai is effectively, and knows that she's doing this, choosing which of her children is more likely to survive the next year or so. Yeah, that is definitely happening here. Obviously, there are a lot of complicated factors going into this. You know, she might not want to send Chaman, a young girl, by herself. She mm -hmm. might think Hathaway's chances are better on his own. He's also older. Gender and age certainly play into it. I think the gender factor is a big one. Later on, there's going to be reference to Hathaway being on the battlefield at such a young age, and they're going to say, that's not such a bad thing for a boy, is it? Obviously, this is coming from a bunch of men who themselves as teenagers were forced to become child soldiers. So take that for what it is. It's pretty brilliant storytelling that in these first couple of minutes of even just this segment, the movie manages to tell us who Quest is in a very accurate and persistent way. Like, I never later in the movie thought, oh, this is different from how they set her up. Like, no, you immediately know from the fact that she was like a runaway hanging out with a bunch of hippies and then seeing her get bodily thrown into a limo to go to the airport. Like, ah, 
poor little rich girl wants to stick it to her dad. Like, okay, we know who you are. But the fact that she ran away, the fact that she bites Kathy in the limo scene, and then that she needles this woman over and over again at the airport until Kathy tries to slap her and misses, tells us so much more about Quest, like how far she is willing to go, how few limits there are on her behavior, and how she gets under everybody's skin. Not to mention that her reaction to the incoming asteroid while they're on the shuttle is our first clue that she is a new type also. Even though she's lived on Earth her whole life, she clearly already has some of that sensitivity. There's no way she could actually have seen the asteroid in front of them, and no one else in the passenger section seems to be aware of it except her. So yeah, she has that sight beyond sight. The scene also has another great example of her personality because when she gets like knocked into Hathaway's lap and she sees her father there praying she like audibly visibly spits on her dad given what he does and how he does it it's hard to imagine that he actually lives any kind of religious code and so the idea of him desperately praying for his own life is kind of detestable I love these little character moments that can be expanded outward to tell us so much about these characters Similar, all that tells us that Shar and Nanai are involved is that they just put an arm around each other as he's walking off to his next meeting. But given how little interpersonal intimate contact there is between characters in this show, we know that that's not friendly. (laughs) (laughs) We know immediately that that implies some kind of romantic relationship between these two characters. And similarly, a moment later, when Gyune refers to Nanai by the wrong title, that tells us instantly that she is relatively new to this position, and also that Gyune knew her before, that they have a pre-existing relationship. These scenes also establish just how important this mission is to Shar, because he is so reluctant in basically every area of his life except for the actual fighting. He hates being a politician. He hates being the leader of the army. He hates having to give these speeches and throw on a suit and be a clown, as he puts it. And yet he subjects himself to it. And I don't believe that he would do that unless he felt it was necessary to further his true ends. Yeah, he feels like a character driven by a sense that he has to do this thing for some reason because it's his destiny, even though he hates everything about what he's doing. Except Except the fighting. Right, except the fighting. Except for dropping asteroids on Earth. Yeah, he's okay with killing and killing adjacent activities. Another scene where a very brief, small gesture indicates a deeper relationship to us is with Amuro and Chen. When Amuro goes to pick up the new Gundam, Chen hops in with him and, and gets in this little passenger seat that it has. And when I first watched this, I thought she passed out from G-force from the acceleration because they accelerate off of a curved ramp before headed out into space. Or maybe she's just asleep because she's been working on this Gundam like all day, every day (laughs) for however long. But after she faints or falls asleep, Amuro very gently and quietly sort of says, Chen, Chen, sort of like checking on her. And I believe he touches her shoulder, but he does it in such a gentle way. And it feels intimate. It feels affectionate. And it's just such a nice relationship that the two of them have. But as with Shar and Nanai, it's not super overt in this early part of the movie. 
We don't learn that they're together because they kiss in front of us. We learn that they're together through this gesture. Chen and her passenger seat <laughs> remind me of just how many cool little mobile suit and mobile suit related details there are in this first section of the movie. There is the passenger seat she's in, which appears to be movable. There are seatbelts, <laughs> which many of you have heard me complain about the lack before. Were there seatbelts? I remember the airbags. Uh, I think some of the mobile suits have seatbelts in this movie. Maybe not all of them. I love the clear airbags. Yes, the reusable airbags for impacts. Those are great. Those are super cool. Somebody suffered a few too many head traumas in the prior shows. Even just the fact that in the opening scene when Chen unveils the new Gundam to us, there are all these little pieces of tape and protective plastic over sections of it because that's often what you do when you're building something before it ships, before it launches. It's got sort of protective coatings and tapes and stuff over it. Especially for all of those cameras. Can you imagine getting a scratch on your meter tall camera glass? When you get a cell phone now or any kind of electronics with a screen on it, it comes with a plastic protector on it. And some people get so much pleasure out of slowly peeling that off. Can you imagine doing that for something the size of the Gundam's camera? Slightly more size comparable. You also see that a lot on uh, appliances, mm. like kitchen appliances, especially if they are stainless steel, like brushed stainless steel. So yes, I can in fact imagine how enjoyable it would be to peel the protective <laughs> plastic coat off. <laughs> In the fight itself, there are the little hooks in the feet of yeah, one got, of the mobile Yeah, they've got extendable cleats. So that they can walk along asteroid surfaces. Char is in such a hurry to launch for this fight that they don't have time to unhook what I assume is a fuel cable that's hooked to his mobile suit. He takes off and it has to like spring unlatch because he's pulling on it. A fuel cable kind of like an umbilical cord. Yeah, I assume that he wants to get up to maximum thrust, maximum acceleration, and then it snaps so that he can launch as fast as possible. God, that scene of him launching is so well drawn. It's amazing. It's beautiful. The last thing I want to talk about in Act 1 is maybe my favorite scene in all of this, which is when they're trying to destroy Fifth Luna, and one of the nearby sides opens fire with these colony-mounted laser cannons. They're not quite colony lasers like in First Gundam or Zeta because they haven't turned an entire colony into a laser, but they do have these cannons on the end of this colony that I assume are used to destroy smaller bits of space junk that threaten the colony. Anyway, they're firing at extreme range, these very powerful laser blasts, and the hope is that they can destroy Fifth Luna. This cannon is then destroyed before it can do much by a group of Neozeon hardliners who shoot the gunners, throw grenades into the control room, and are then themselves blown up in the ensuing explosion. They're suicide bombers. Yes. And this is made clear in the things that they scream as they are blown up. One of them says, Neozeon Banzai. We did a research piece on the use of the word Banzai back in season three, but they also say a different word. When they are shooting the gunners, the guy yells Tenchu, which is translated in the subtitles as justice, which is not quite right. Tenchu means divine punishment, heavenly punishment, and it's a tremendously loaded word. In an interview where he was talking about Char's counterattack, the famous anime director Oshii Mamoru 
mentioned that a screenwriter friend of his had to stop watching the movie when he heard that word. It conveys a lot. For older Japanese people especially, it harkens back to the military rule period. Tenchu has close associations with imperial nationalism. There was an uprising in the 1860s called the Tenchugumi Uprising, which was a group of samurai who supported the emperor in his efforts to reassert power vis-a-vis the shogun. And it also may evoke the February 26th incident, or the Young Officers Revolt, which I talked about in Season 2, but to give the short version of it, it was a group of proto-fascist soldiers who assassinated various government ministers in the name of emperor and nation. And they described their actions, those assassinations, as tenchu, as heavenly punishment for the men that they had killed. And with that, we move on to Act 2. Act 2, Londonian. Damaged by the debris from Fifth Luna, the shuttle bearing Hathaway Noah and the pariahs found itself close enough for the passengers to watch this latest battle, their faces pressed to the windows. In the post-battle calm, the stranded shuttle is picked up by the Rakhylum. To Bright's surprise, Hathaway is among the nervous passengers, clumsy in the unaccustomed low gravity of the ship. They barely have a chance to greet each other before Adenauer Pariah interrupts. Hathaway and Quest are sent to the mess hall, and the minister makes an urgent request that the ship be redirected to Londonian on Federation business. Resting after the journey and the fight, Amuro dreams. He floats in a starry pink void, streaks of light shooting past. A swan flies into view and transforms into Lala Soon. Her spirit persists in space, and Char and Amaro, full of fury and regret, see her sometimes. She muses about the agony of living on forever after death, but in the next breath tells Amaro that she wants to watch over him and Char, stay with them both forever. Amaro accuses her of selfishly trying to keep him and Char for herself, yelling for her to forget Char, but her response is cryptic. She says only that Char is pure, before transforming back into a swan. Amara wakes with a gasp, angry and confused by the persistence of these old dreams. In the hangar, the Ayug veteran Astanaji lets Quest and Hathaway try out some of the latest, still-secret, military mobile suit piloting simulations. Wandering away, Quest runs into a pilot who gives her a friendly warning. This area isn't safe for civilians. A moment later, Quest realizes the man was none other than the famous Amuro Ray. Hanging out in a lounge on the ship, she and Hathaway share legends that they've heard about Amuro's exploits and debate what it means to be a new type. Is it some instinctive knowledge of how to pilot? Of how to kill? Did space unlock humanity's unused brain cells? Is it telepathy? Precognition? Quest remembers her friend in India, Christina, who said that new types have a fundamental understanding of people and objects, a spiritual connection regardless of distance. With this part, at least, Hathaway agrees, thinking about his own family trying to stay connected while some of them are on Earth and others in space. Quest is clearly fascinated by new types. She confronts Chen about the engineer's cozy relationship with Amuro. 
Chen responds politely but vaguely, but Quest won't let it go. She explains that she's studied new types, that this is why she is interested in Amuro, and that Chen needs to get off the Rock Island right now. Chen can only chuckle at the young girl. Soon the ship approaches Londinian. Watching through a porthole, Hathaway and Quest are in awe. Neither of them has ever seen a space colony before. They talk about the war, both sympathize with the spacenoid desire for independence. But Hathaway is taken aback when Quest expresses her sympathy with Char's plan to make Earth uninhabitable. Maybe the people of Earth are conservative hypocrites, unbothered by divorce and remarriage, but does that give Char the right to destroy Earth? To this, Quest doesn't have an answer. On the bridge, Bright and Amuro wonder about Char's next move. He needs to drop more objects onto the planet, but the Federation tightly controls everything inside lunar orbit. They know he wants Sweetwater Colony officially transferred to Neo-Zeon control. Could he be planning to drop it, too? They assume that secret negotiations are about to begin between the two governments. Why else would Pariah redirect their ship to Londinian? As for Char, Though the two men fought alongside him in the last war, they struggle to understand his motivations now. Once docked, Amuro volunteers to show Hathaway and Quest around the colony. The three set out, accompanied by an old friend, a third-generation Haro. That same morning, the negotiations are underway. At a shining wooden table in a grand mansion, the politicians and officials of the two sides are arrayed across from each other. Char arrives in full-dress uniform and sits just behind the Neo-Zeon officials, rather than at the table next to them. He barely speaks but fulfills his purpose. The Federation contingent is surprised that Neo-Zeon's supreme leader himself would make an appearance. As Zeon soldiers place briefcases full of gold bars in front of each Federation negotiator, Adenauer explains the deal. In exchange for peace and more gold, the Federation agrees to hand over the abandoned asteroid base Axis, its nuclear pulse engines still operational. Handshakes and signatures seal the deal, then Char leaves as silently as he entered. He changes into an ordinary suit and puts on his iconic sunglasses. Gazing out the window, he thinks, Amuro, I'm doing something extremely wicked. If you're nearby, feel my presence. The tourists are in an open-top jeep, driving through Londinian's fields and forests, enjoying the greenery and the wildlife. A flock of birds take flight off the surface of the water, and Amuro startles when one of them, a large white water bird, seems to laugh and transform into Lala. Moments later, Char emerges from the woods in front of them on horseback. He takes off at a gallop, Amuro driving after him. They yell back and forth, Amuro demanding to know why Char is pursuing his current plan, and Char justifying himself by asserting that all Earthnoids do is pollute the planet. They are weighed down by its gravity. Pulling alongside the rider, Amuro jumps from the car, tackling Char from his horse. They wrestle in the grass, rolling, thrashing, punching, and kicking at each other. Amuro gets the upper hand and draws his gun. But before he can put an end to Char's plans once and for all, Quest snatches the gun out of his hand and runs to Char's side. Amuro, you aren't fighting fair, she yells, pointing the pistol back at its owner. But Char isn't concerned about Amuro any longer. 
He takes the girl's hands and suggests she come with him. Gune arrives in a disguised mobile suit, and together the Neozeon agents make good their escape. I know that the translators are doing really, really difficult work under probably very difficult circumstances. I don't know what the translation process for this movie was like. I don't know what kind of external pressures there were, but there are some translation decisions in this section that I find completely baffling. Oh? One of them that stands out the most is when Bright and Amaro this is right before the ship goes into Londonian, and they're talking about Char's plans and Char's motivations. They have this whole discussion back and forth about what Char's motivations are. And then at the end of the conversation, Amaro says, now he wants to end it once and for all. And Bright responds, but why? Which makes no sense, because they were just talking about the why a second ago. And what Bright has actually said in Japanese is, uh, subete, echoing something that Amaro said just a second ago when he was saying Char wants to end it once and for all. Isn't subete like completely? Yeah, I think when Amaro uses it, that's where they get to once and for all. Mm -hmm. Like Char wants to finish it completely. It almost makes more sense for Bright to be asking completely. Like what exactly would that even mean? finish what completely? Mm -hmm. Which aspect of this will actually be over if Char succeeds? That's probably the best example for one where I was just totally baffled. There are other moments in this act where I think the English translation loses some of the nuance that you get in the Japanese or some of the potential wordplay or double meanings. For instance, in one of my favorite exchanges between Quest and Chen, when Quest says, like, what is your relationship with Amaro? You're getting in the way. You're interfering. Get off the ship at once. Because initially, when she says, what is your relationship? She says, kanke, which means relationship, but it's homophonic with a word for plots or evil designs. What are your plans for Amaro? <laughs> right. What are your intentions for Amaro? What are you plotting? I mean, I... I do think that the more common usage and the, it would be immediately understood to mean relationship in that context. Sure, but I think it's a little bit of wordplay. And that becomes, I think, more clear with this next line, because when Quest says you're interfering, she says jama suru. Jama is usually like bother. You'll hear people say like, o jama shimasu when they come into a room or an office. It's like, oh, sorry to bother you. Sorry, I'm intruding. But Jama is derived from a Buddhist term for a demon who interferes with the pursuit of spiritual enlightenment by offering earthly temptations. So that is really funny, but that is a much more obscure meaning than the, the phrase of Jama is like to bother. But in this context where Quest is talking about her own new type training and her interest in Amaro being about pursuing her spiritual new type abilities. And Chen is getting in the way. Offering Amuro those earthly temptations instead of allowing him to become elevated, to become a true new type. All right, I think this is one where we disagree a bit. <laughs> well, that's valid. Though, since you brought it up, there's a lot of great discussion in this section about new types and new type related information. 
One thing that didn't occur to me until several watch-throughs of the movie, my first reaction to Quest's confrontation of Chen was that Quest is attracted to power and is used to getting everything she wants, and so just total entitlement. Oh, the famous Amuro. I want this famous guy and this other woman is in the way. Clearly, I have a right to tell her to get out of my way, and she'll do what I say. That's just how the world works, and then it doesn't work out for her. But it's also been established through the shows that new types sometimes have a particularly strong attraction to each other. And so while I do think that sense of entitlement is a big part of Quest's character, she's probably also feeling a certain amount of new type connection to Amuro. He is older and more experienced and has other relationships that prevent it from being that intense for him. Quest is much younger, much less experienced, has not felt this way before or been around other new types before, at least that she knows of. And so she's probably really experiencing a very strong mental, emotional, psychic attraction to Amuro. Hmm. I mean, you have to admit it is a thing from previous Absolutely, it is. It is. And I do think there is... Maybe some of that between her and Char, you know, in this segment, we do get her a couple of times sort of saying like, oh, I like I get Char. I understand where he's coming from. I agree with him. And I wonder how much of that is actually that new type empathy, that sense of psychic attraction. I don't know. This is the part where Bright says that Quest has good instincts, which in a vacuum wouldn't mean anything, but we have been watching Gundam for years now and we know what good instincts is code for. Especially when Bright notices. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing the movie does that I love is they have the conversation between Hathaway and Quest about what does it mean to be a new type, and there is no conclusive answer. They do not answer the question in a way that says definitively, ah, this is the true answer and that other stuff is incorrect. And we, from our audience perspective, see all of the different things that they bring up as being part of it. Mm -hmm. Except maybe for the bit about like unlocking unused brain cells. (laughs) We'll have to wait to see what Dr. Shar has to say about that. But being better at fighting, being intrinsically connected to people across long distances, understanding the real essence of people and things. Yeah, that ability to perceive like how machines work that gets mentioned in this scene is something we haven't seen a ton of since First Gundam. But you remember there were episodes where Amuro like would look at an enemy ship and he would know the exact spot where he could stick his beam saber to destroy it. The perception is not limited to fleshy organic matter. It's not just mind and mind. I want to backtrack just for a moment to Quest confronting Chen, because in that moment, I feel like Chen's reaction is all of us. (laughs) Just kind of befuddled that this girl she's never seen before, this civilian child has wandered into the hangar and is telling her that she has to get off the ship where she works because this child is obsessed with Chen's boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the first of several moments in this section that really highlight the ways in which Chen is quite different from the character of Beltorchka as we see Beltorchka in the show. I don't really know how she's characterized in the books, so I can't speak to that, but the Beltorchka who appears in the show is extremely possessive 
and jealous. She was jealous of Camille, for instance. And Char, like not just of other women. <laughs> and that Beltorchka, I think, would have a very different reaction to Quest than Chen has. Yes, I think that's true. And then later on, when the group of them are headed down into the colony, Amaro Chen and Hathaway, Hathaway asks her, oh, is it okay that we're taking Amaro with us to go sightseeing? And she's like, I get to spend all of my time with him. It's fine. Go have fun. <laughs> yeah, the healthiness of the Amaro and Chen relationship is on display here. Although this is also the section that gives us that beautiful but so sad scene of Chen waiting for Amaro after he has the dream. Uh. So realistically, she's not waiting for all that long. He's just getting dressed. How long can it take him to throw on some clothes? It is cut in a way that makes it seem like she's waiting a really long time. It's cut in a way to make it seem like she's there for ages. Like he's taking a whole long shower and then getting (laughs) dressed. And I kind of want to be like, girl, get some (laughs) (laughs) self-respect. But the way she curls up into a ball, I mean... It's sad. Yeah. But that's part of why I'm like, he ain't worth it. It just feels very revealing of her inward character in a way that the other scenes where she's always interacting with people just aren't. She does have that little interaction with Amuro, though, where she mentions how usually he's warm and affectionate and kind, but then sometimes he'll go to kind of this cold, distant place. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't, I mean, he says, oh, oh, do I? And then (laughs) like they don't talk about it. I mean, on the one hand, that's trauma, baby. But on the other hand, I'm reminded of the way At the end of Zeta, and for most of Double Zeta, Camille's like whole psyche, his whole self, kind of went somewhere else for a while. And I'm wondering if that coldness that uh, Chen is sensing is not like some part of Amaro's consciousness drifting in new type space. I have a very silly note, which is that if Char and Amaro and Lala could just get over themselves and form a little ghostly new type polycule, then none of this would have had to happen. My sort of serious response to the joke is that Shar and Amaro both feel a need to win because winning would justify their actions thus far. Mm. Neither of them are entirely comfortable with everything that they've done. And so only winning would make it all worthwhile. I definitely thought that the characters had arrived in Londonian much earlier because of the scene of... uh, of Hathaway and Quest in that lounge. Mm. Because the lounge has uh, one wall, I suppose, is what it probably is. But it's, uh, if it were a real building, it'd be open to nature like a patio, looking out over a coastline with mountains in the distance and a sunset and birds flying and plants and waves crashing on the rocks. It feels very much like, ah, here is this space overlooking an actual natural space. They never do anything to highlight that it's false, except for the fact that they are still on (laughs) the rock island. And that they're still drifting around in low gravity. It's a beautiful scene, and it makes total sense that on a ship for long periods of time, you would want something like that in the mess hall, something to help people to unwind, to remind people of Earth. I think its purpose in the movie, besides being beautiful, is to show that yearning for Earth or the yearning for an Earth-like environment that people still possess, even living out in space. But we also know from Quest and Hathaway's reactions to seeing Londonian itself that Londonian, and we can sort of extrapolate 
other man-made environments are just as, if not more, beautiful than Earth. They both just came from Earth. Hathaway has never been to space before. Quest, to our knowledge, has never been to space before. Uh, and yet they are no less awestruck by the, the nature and the environment present in these space colonies. I mean, that's true. I think there's a lot more that we can say about the ecology of the space environments, about the relationship between the environment on Earth and the environment in Londonian. And so it's very convenient that we'll be having a special guest joining us soon to talk about exactly that. I do want to point out, you mentioned that, as far as we know, Quest has always lived on Earth. And that's really interesting because we get this whole discussion about new types and how people become new types in which Quest and Hathaway theorize that it's moving into space that has allowed humanity to become new types. This is something that forms the foundation of Char's ideology. And yet Quest, who is definitely a new type, has never been to space before. Right. So clearly that's not actually a prerequisite. Although if she never had any sort of activations of that potential before she left Earth, maybe that's it. Maybe there are a lot of potential new types on <laughs> Earth. Uh, but it's very unclear, like you pointed out. The one thing that's very obvious is you don't have to have spent your whole life in space to be a new type to have that potential. Yeah, it's easy to harp about things that I don't like about Quest, but her whole uh, discussion with Hathaway about the war and her conflation of her problems with her own parents with uh, problems that must be true of all human people on the whole earth is just... Yeah. <laughs> In talking about this movie, Oshi Mamoru talks about what he calls a like retaliatory impulse in certain fringe aspects of Japanese politics in the 60s and 70s, founded on this idea that like that humanity is bad at its core, that there is this desire to to lash out and to punish this bad humanity. And I think that's what Quest is evoking here. Because there's a there's an immediate transfer from like the system is bad, the system by which the Federation rules over these colonies from afar is bad, to the people are bad. She's thinking about her father. And then the solution to that is to kill them all in order to bring out the potential of humanity. That's very interesting that there's the political connection. I had really only thought about the fact that she's quite young and fairly sheltered and so has a fairly limited experience and all of us you know fight a tendency to think about everything in terms of our own lived experience <laughs> and it's a thing that we have to train ourselves out of it's a thing that we have to to learn to think about things in a broader way from a broader perspective that she doesn't have yet and it's especially difficult in this movie because I do think the movie uses Quest's bad relationship with her dad and her dad's complete obliviousness to Quest's interests and desires in order to show how ill-suited he is to the role of essentially leader of the colonies. That's a great point. As I was prepping my notes for this section, it popped into my head that part of Char's appeal and... Uh, we'll talk about <laughs> all of the various things he says he wants to accomplish 
and the appeal of those things at length. But part of his appeal might simply be that he is offering some kind of a plan when it appears like the Federation really doesn't have anything to offer. The Federation is not making appealing suggestions. When Quest calls out her father saying, you know, you're, you're governing all these colonies from Earth. You don't know anything about how they live. He doesn't even bother to respond to her. Yeah, he just says, like, that's how it is. He doesn't justify it even. There's no real justification he could make that I would agree with. But his daughter is, you know, theoretically the future leadership of the Federation. She's the next generation. And he makes no effort to win her over to the rightness of Federation leadership. Yeah, the Federation has no coherent ideology, at least none that has ever been expressed. What they have is inertia. They have power. Um, and they just sort of lurch from one crisis to the next, hoping that whatever it is will be small enough that it won't interrupt the inertia of their government. When you see big problems and you see the people best positioned to deal with them with no plans or solutions or even suggestions, and then the opposition has a very bold, even extreme plan, I can understand that that would have some appeal, even if I don't agree with the plan. It's like, well, at least he's got an idea. At least he cares about appealing to us, unlike the people already in power who really don't care whether we like it or not or think it's right or not. It's such a short moment, but can we mention that Bright doesn't exactly seem happy to see Hathaway? <laughs> well, I mean, in his situation, would you? No. Like, everything about this reunion is bad. They just rescued this damaged shuttle from the edge of a battlefield. They're about to go back into another battle. Mirai and Shaman were not on the shuttle. Yeah. I did like, in this scene, I noticed they give Hathaway Bright's eyes, but he has Mirai's hair. Aw. He also gets a Haro. Ugh, it's good to have a Haro. Uh, I don't know. I think it spells doom. It means your childish innocence is soon to be lost. I think it spells Haro. <laughs> There's something so beautiful about the pure joy of a boy playing with a Haro. Are they setting him up to be Cat's Redux? Ooh. I mean, there's definitely something to be said for a lot of Gundam characters being remixes of prior ones. You know, just sort of like moving characters around, putting them in different configurations, trying slightly different takes on them. You know, the Hathaway and Quest relationship bears a lot of similarity to Katz and Sarah. Speaking of bringing old characters back again in new forms, Cameron Bloom is back, and he's taken on the new form of Audit Bureau member. Of all the characters that they could have revived from First Gundam, Cameron Bloom. Yeah, but he's sort of perfect, right? Part of the reason Mirai left him was because he was working for a neutral government sort of benefiting from the war while staying completely out of it, which Mirai found morally reprehensible. And so now, of course, he's working for the Federation government. <laughs> he is a career bureaucrat. It makes sense. Like, it fits. It's just surprising to see him again. It was one of the weird little, like, fan servicey thrills for me. Like, oh, I recognize that guy. Yeah. Also, the return of Astanaji. That made me happy. I uh, love an Astanaji. Although I also feel bad for him. I feel like he's had to babysit so many generations of wild new type kids in space. <laughs> he deserves a medal. 
at least on the Rock Island, he has like a whole team and the resources of the Federation compared to when he was on the Argama and the Nail Argama. And it was just like him and two other people trying to maintain 10 mobile suits. Poor Astanaji. Anyway, I also like seeing Bloom in this environment because as a career civil servant, but like kind of an honest one, he's a great foil for the higher up guys who are just run through with corruption. In that meeting with Char's Neo-Zeon group, one of the first things that happens is that the Neo-Zeon uh, lackeys carry in briefcases full of gold and they put one down in front of each of the Federation negotiators. It's like, this is your party favor. This is your gift just for showing up. This is our payment for the Axis asteroid. I think the cart loaded down with gold, that's the payment. The briefcases, they don't even pretend those are anything except what they are. I thought they described it as the payment when they were putting those out, but like the reason you include the Audit Bureau in this and the reason you also bribe the Audit Bureau and the reason you use untraceable gold bars is so that you can then lie to the public and say, ah, Xeon compensated us X amount when it was actually Y and all the bureaucrats pocketed the difference. Before getting into Gundam podcasting, I worked as a lawyer and I was occasionally adjacent to these sorts of high-level negotiations. Um, nothing as interesting as this. And in that context, it's very normal for people to be given like a little something, a nice pen, whatever, at one of these meetings. A little something. But in this context, that a little something is a briefcase full of gold. And you hear, you know, anecdotally in the real world about people who make a deal and then are given a Ferrari or whatever. And those two events, definitely completely unrelated. And as I just covered in our 1980s roundup, there was a rather large corruption scandal where people were being bribed for political favors that was exposed shortly before this movie came out. So corruption in Japanese politics was very front of mind. I also find this very interesting because later in the meeting, they make a point of having this exchange about if the Federation will allow the Neo-Zeon fleet to escort Axis, and the Federation says, oh, and we'll find them jobs in the Federation forces when the war is over. Because none of that is necessary. None of that plays out in the course of the film. It's not like they're tricking the Federation here. And they make a point of having the Neo-Zeon negotiators say, when this is over, we won't be in a position to pay severance. And it's like, what is that cart full of gold, except the money that Neo-Zeon could have used for other things, could have used to pay their soldiers, could have used to fix Sweetwater, could have used for something else. Well, it's all a shell game, right? I don't think it's in this section, but later Pariah is going to claim that these massive payments from Neo-Zeon are going to pay for welfare policies in the Federation. Maybe a little bit, but I kind of <laughs> doubt it. You know, 10% for welfare policies, 90% for administrative fees. Salary bumps, whatever. Uh, like, oh, yeah, we, we need to do these things to support the people. But then when it actually comes time to support the people with the money, the money's not there anymore. It's been used uh, for pet projects or whatever. Which is the same on both sides, right? And this parallelism between the two sides is emphasized in this meeting. We won't see it in the movie until a later section, but the gestures that Pariah makes 
when he greets the Neo Zeon uh, delegates, Char is going to make those same gestures in a later scene. Char lending seriousness, a little gravitas to his side just by showing up. He doesn't say a word and he doesn't even sit at the table. He's not part of the negotiations, but by being there indicates to the other side that his side is serious. He does express surprise that they won't have enough money to pay their crew, Mm -hmm. which could be a farce, right? It could be part of this whole act he's putting on, or he could be earnestly surprised. He might really not know anything about the logistics of the movement that he's leading. Maybe Horst Harness, the negotiator, and Kaisis Bayer are actually the guys in charge of all the practical aspects. And this is suggested earlier when they're talking about how they obtained the codes to get access to uh, this Federation colony. And Horst Harness points out that it's thanks to their behind-the-scenes work. Somewhat humorously, Chen was more upset by the fact that uh, Anaheim Electronics was double-dealing. Amuro is more upset by the politicians. Well, Anaheim doesn't pretend to be on their side. Anaheim is very clear about their interests. After the negotiations, we get, of course, the very famous (laughs) scene and line from Shar about doing something extremely wicked. And then he gets on a horse, which I think we can all agree is extremely wicked. Why? I don't... Other than the fact that it looks cool, I cannot imagine any justification for him being on a horse. And honestly, it looks cool is a fine enough reason, but am I missing something? (laughs) He was on a horse for the encounter between him and Sela in the... Texas colony in First Gundam. Wasn't she also in an open-top Jeep for that? She was. And I think they were also debating, like, what are you doing? What is your plan? I disagree with your plan. Mm -hmm. I think so. I think this is a conscious callback to that one. I do think Sayla's Jeep was even the same color. Also, Char has an aristocratic upbringing, whereas Amuro is much more middle class. And so that horse versus car uh, chase kind of evokes both of their backgrounds. Here's a question for you. Would Amuro have shot Char if Quest hadn't karate chopped the gun out of his hand? Yes, 100%. Really? I'm absolutely confident Amuro would have shot him. Interesting. I was not confident. If the situation was reversed, Char would not have shot Amuro because Char needs some kind of like true equal confrontation. Right. Char would need Amuro to also have a gun. <laughs> Char needs to feel the right thing from this confrontation with Amuro, and he keeps trying to get it, and he keeps not quite getting it. Amuro just wants this to be over. During the fight, Amuro throws Char with a judo throw that I'm going to assume he learned from Hayato. I'm just going to assume that. I'm going to assume that's Hayato's contribution to this movie. The judo throw Amuro uses is Tomoe Nage, which is a throw where you grab your opponent by the lapels, you put your foot in their stomach, basically, and then you kick them over your head as you fall back onto your own back. It's a form of what are called sacrifice throws, or sutemiwaza. And I think that's important. I think that's subtext here. These are throws that only work if you are willing to accept the possibility of your own death in the pursuit of victory. Right. It's really hammering home for us 
one of the themes in the movie, at least around Amaro's character, that he is willing to sacrifice himself. If we didn't already get that from when he jumps out of a moving Jeep at a guy on horseback, leaving poor Hathaway to grab the wheel. Haro, take the wheel! Haro is working the pedals. Act three, what politicians do. Once they reach Char's flagship, he asks Quest what she would like to do. They'll be headed to space after all. But she thinks of Chen and tells him that a hag on the rock hylum cramps her style. She decides to stick with Neo Zeon. Captain Bright is approached by an old acquaintance, Cameron Bloom of the Federation Audit Bureau. He was present for the secret negotiations and tells Bright what's happened. He's afraid that the peace agreement is a sham, and Bright agrees. Horrified, Bright confronts Pariah, who spouts excuses. Bright retorts that Char only wants to hurt Earth, Neozeon won't disarm. But Pariah isn't listening. He's on his way to oversee the surrender of Neozeon's fleet. Quest is settling in with Neozeon. She sits in Kune's lap inside a mobile suit, grinning as she makes the suit strike poses and do tricks. You're a natural, Kune tells her. Watching from a nearby ship, Shara and Nanai notice her skill as well. Once she lands, Shar meets with Quest alone in one of the more luxuriously appointed meeting rooms. You must have terrible memories for you to hate Earth so much. Why were you drawn to me? He asks her. Why did you betray your friends? To Quest, it almost felt like fate. And when he talked about souls weighed down by gravity, she realized she felt the same way. Besides, she barely knows the people she was with. They're hardly her friends. Next, they test her with the psycho move, confirming that the girl is the real deal, a new type. Just like her, Char murmurs, thinking of Lala. At Sweetwater, Gune and Quest accompany Char on a train through the colony. They make an impressive sight in their dress uniforms, and everyone on the train seems to recognize Char. An elderly woman passes him a flower, and all the passengers sing an anthem, praising Char for fighting for them. Stopping in Beverly Hills, they transfer to a limousine. Char parts ways with the two teenagers at the gates of his mansion, but he kisses Quest's hand before departing. That night, the Neozeon leader gazes out through massive windows at the curve of the colony, the lights almost like stars. Nanai, robed and barefoot, brings him a drink. She questions whether he's really reconciled with the evil of his plan. But he sees it as necessary. For the good of humanity, he will personally bear the burden of ultimate sin. Is this all about getting even with Amaro, Nanai wonders? And even as he rejects the suggestion, Char flashes back to Lala's death. Amro and I are just two alike. Naturally, we hate each other, he explains. Hate and love can be two sides of the same coin, Nanai counters. When Char leaves abruptly, without so much as a kiss or an affectionate touch, she pitches her drink across the room in a fit of anger, wondering what Char sees in quests. I thought he had changed his ways, she snarls. Everyone is preparing for Shar's next move. On Earth, Mirai and Chaemin are hunkered down in Hong Kong. There's talk of a peace treaty, but Mirai knows Shar better than that. 
and Hong Kong will be his next target. On Londonian, Cameron secretly transfers a cache of nuclear weapons from the Audit Bureau to Londo Bell. With the Federation's main nuclear arsenal stored in the asteroid fortress Luna 2 under Adenauer Pariah's control, these are the only such weapons available. But they're outmoded, obsolete. Why else would the Audit Bureau be in charge of nukes? Armed with these antique bombs, the Rock Hylum departs Londonian. Bright leaves Hathaway behind, but the younger Noah sneaks back aboard his father's ship. All the pieces are moving into place for Char's final act. Assembling his fleet, Char gives one last speech. He rails against the Federation's rule. The colony the Federation hastily cobbled together to house refugees of the prior wars is a wreck. But the Federation is indifferent, corrupt. They are hoarding the Earth and denying the Spacenoids their right to self-determination. He assures them that if they win, if they make Earth uninhabitable, if they exterminate all Earthnoids, this will be the last war humanity ever fights. The Earth itself is the source of all war. And then it begins. The Neo-Zeon fleet proceeds to Luna 2, ostensibly to surrender, but actually to seize the nuclear arsenal there. And while their surprise attacks keep the Federation occupied, two ships, including Char's flagship, race to seize control of Axis before the deception is discovered. It works. Neo-Zeon unleashes a devastating barrage before the Federation can respond. This is Quest's first battle, and almost as soon as she is launched, she freezes, frightened, while Gune protects her from enemy fire. Even terrified, she senses another ship hiding behind a nearby asteroid. Rocketing toward it, she attacks the bridge, unknowingly killing her own father. She cheers her success, but the excitement passes and nausea washes over her. Why do I feel ill, she mutters. The Federation fleet is slaughtered and Luna 2 falls. By the time Londo Bell has figured out exactly what's happened, Char is already at Axis. Two things to kick us off. One, it was absolutely not clear to me on the first watch through of this that Cameron Bloom gave them nukes. Whooshed right over my head. Do they even state it explicitly? I like. Um, hmm, how explicit do they get? <laughs> what, what counts as, as stating it explicitly, I guess? Bright and Cameron are talking and Bright says something like, ah, so there were 15 nukes besides the ones stored at Luna 2. And Cameron Bloom says, yes, they're the only ones we have, but they're antiques. That's why they were entrusted to the Audit Bureau or something like that. Ah, okay. I think I probably just missed that last line. That's why they were entrusted to the Audit Bureau. I thought they were talking about, yeah, some weaponry for Londo Bell, but like a general requisition or what Londo Bell already had left over from pre- Okay. Uh, second question is, would Cameron Bloom be helping now if Mirai hadn't dressed him down so thoroughly- Back in first Gundam. No, not a chance. <laughs> she told that kid to straighten up and fly right. Yep. And it's stuck with him ever since. Also, he's still carrying a torch for her a little bit. Oh, 100%. Like. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he has that bit where he's like, I want Mirai to live. I want to see her again. And Bright is like, I understand. <laughs> If you weren't risking your life to help me and you didn't just give me a cache of nuclear weapons, maybe I would feel differently about this. Maybe we would need to have words or fists, but 
I don't know. Bright does not behave like a man who wants to spend more time with his wife. <laughs> That's a little harsh. See, you say that, but you were absolutely cracking up just no, now. I, you just I stifled was. the laughter. I was laughing. It's true. Um, I think probably Bright would like to see Mirai again. I just think Bright can understand why a person would still carry a torch for Mirai even after all these years. I'm just joking that Bright clearly prioritizes what he perceives to be his duty above all other things, including his family, uh, which Mirai clearly respects and loves about him. But seeing her is not his like numero uno <laughs> priority. I mean, classic working father trope, though, right? Like, absolutely. He's got to go and bring home the bacon or save the world, depending on what your job happens to be. This whole arc feels like a bridge between the positions that everyone starts out in and where everyone needs to be for the final confrontation. This is literally the point where everybody comes together. Almost every important character is on Londonian at the same time. And then they split up and they go their various different ways. And this is also where we go from having some idea of what Shar is planning to do to knowing exactly what Shar is planning to do. Which makes it that much funnier, sadder, both, <laughs> that uh, that the Federation clearly do not understand Shar at all. Yeah, yeah, not one little bit. I actually, I really love the scene between Bright and Adenauer when Adenauer is leaving for Luna 2 because you recognize immediately that the scene itself is very critical of Adenauer. And it does this in some background ways, like the way he has to sort of flail around in zero G until he gets grabbed by one of the guys on the ship. You know, he's made to look ridiculous. And that's a shorthand that I think has come up in previous Gundam 2 to really emphasize that somebody isn't used to space, doesn't understand space. They literally don't know how to move. And that's contrasted with the agility of Bright in the same environment. Or even the soldiers helping Adenauer <laughs> all are just so uh, adroit and comfortable. But what makes this even better is that in the scene, textually, Adenauer is presented as somebody who feels completely in control of the situation. He thinks he has got everything figured out. Shar's going to surrender. They'll have money to fund their policies. Like, everything's coming up roses for Adenauer. And yet, over and over in this scene, it is driven home to us, subtextually, how totally outside of his control the situation has become. Because we know Shar isn't actually planning to surrender, but we also get this bit of him unable to move around, literally unable to control himself in the environment. And then the scene ends with him trying to call Quest's hotel, and he thinks he's still in control of the situation with his daughter, has no idea that she has already deserted over to the Neo-Zeon side. Not to mention the painful dismissiveness radiating off of this guy now that he doesn't think he really needs Londo Bell anymore. Uh, his back is to Bright the whole time. He doesn't even do Bright the respect of looking at him while they talk. And when Bright says that he is going to have Londo Bell keep an eye on things because he doesn't trust the surrender, he doesn't trust Char, Pariah doesn't actually, but effectively does the little hand wave of like, oh, do whatever you want. Like, <laughs> that's fine. Whatever. Mm -hmm. And this scene of Adenauer having no control at all is then immediately contrasted with Quest flying a mobile suit in space for the first time. 
It's a joyful, fun, funny, happy scene for her where she's actually for a moment coming into a sense of freedom and power. Doing something she's interested in and good at. Getting to be the center of attention, getting to show off, displaying a, a truly innate knack for piloting. Which is hilariously contrasted with Hathaway in his yes. rented petite mobile suit. And Hathaway is just a bad pilot. He obviously has no experience. We would expect him to be bad at it. But he he clearly lacks that natural ability that someone like Quest has. And this then sets up the roles that the two of them will continue to have for the remainder of the movie. Everything is being maneuvered into the correct orbits so that they can all intersect again later. I love the bit of Hathaway's poor little chibi mobile suit <laughs> collapsing Tumbling in the over. Heat. Like, that's a double Zeta moment. That's uh, something that would happen to Judo. When Quest first arrives at the Ralua? Rulula. Rulula. It's hard to say for me. Her line in Japanese about why she decides to stay with them is that there's a woman uh, on the other ship that she can't stand, basically. In the English translation, <laughs> I love the way they translate this line. They say, oh, there's a hag who cramps my style, <laughs> which is... This is entirely unrelated to the movie, but it just makes me think about the way people talk about age on the internet now, where to a teenager, someone who's 22 is ancient. Chen is probably in her mid-20s. like Right. Chen is not old by any stretch of the imagination, unless you're 13. Also, just there's a hag on the Rock Island who cramps my style. This movie wasn't actually translated in the 80s, but in this one specific moment, they really captured that 80s movie teenager dialogue. And a quick note that when Shar addresses her as Quest Air, that's her pseudonym that she takes on. That's never explained. He just starts calling her that, and I guess we're meant to understand that that is what's happening. But I asked Tom about that after the movie, and he had to explain it to me. Yeah. Not only do they not explain it, but they never go anywhere with it. I, he calls her Quest Air like twice and never again. A lot of the parts of this section are so iconic that we are going to talk about them at length, probably over and over again with our different guests. So there are going to be a bunch of bits in here that we're really barely going to touch on, despite how important they are. Don't worry. You'll hear more than enough of them in the future. That said, one scene I definitely want to talk about right now is the one between Shar and Nanai at Shar's mansion on Sweetwater when they're both in bathrobes. I think you pointed out she is barefoot. He's wearing slippers, maybe? He seems like a slippers kind He's of guy. He's wearing pajamas and a robe and slippers. She's wearing a robe is there anything underneath it? We don't know. And is barefoot. The suggestion of intimacy is very strong. Yeah. Um, and the scene is structured around Nanai fixing the two of them drinks. Quite substantial drinks, for that matter. Um, and then neither of them actually drinking them. As they fiddle with, uh, stare at, and play with their glasses before Nanai throws hers across the room in a fit of rage. The character acting here, the way they look at each other, the way they move around the room, the way they play with their drinks is all really phenomenal. And there's a moment that I didn't notice until, like, I guess this was my 14th or 15th watch through. 
since we started on season four. Um, but when Shar taps his glass into Nanai's collarbone and then holds it there and says, I'll wait for you at Axis. At first, Nanai smiles. She looks very playful. Then when he says, I'll wait for you at Axis, there's a beat as she realizes what he's just said and realizes that he's not just playfully bouncing his glass off her collarbone, but handing it to her to take so that he can leave. And for just a second, like a frame or two, you see like anger, rage pass across her face and then immediately smile again. The same anger that comes out again after he's left and she's alone. It's so subtle, it's so fast, and I love it. This isn't going to come up in the movie until later on, but we also know that she doesn't want him fighting in active combat. She doesn't really feel like he's supposed to be out there as the supreme leader of Neo Zeon. And as someone who is like special and important to her, it right. seems. She's holding out her hand, offering him the rewards of being loved. And he just has to accept the mortifying ordeal of being known. He will not. Hilariously, I find this scene to be one that reveals that she is simultaneously very insightful about Char and doesn't know him at all. <laughs> whether it was always intended to be the case or whether it's a response to fan reactions to these characters, her line about how hate and love are often two sides of the same coin with regards to how Char feels about Amaro <laughs> feels quite pointed uh, and is certainly not something Char is aware of on any conscious level. At the same time, she thinks he's being distant with her because he's interested in quests, which, no. <laughs> in this section, there are a lot of people speculating about Char and his motivations and his plans, and most of them are partly wrong, but nobody is entirely wrong. Nanai also does something that probably no one else has bothered to do, which is to check in with Char about, okay, so here's your plan. It is going to be widely acknowledged, and you even acknowledge it, to be horrifically evil. Probably the most evil thing any human person has ever done. Are you sure you want to do it? And he doesn't answer. Not really. He says it's too late for that now. Mm, he also describes feeling as though it is his destiny to take on this sin for the benefit of humanity. And that phrasing, the way that he describes what he's doing in terms of sin, made me think about how he and Amaro are both kind of savior figures within this movie. Two different visions of a savior figure, though both because I was raised Catholic make me think about Christianity. Amaro is the self-sacrificing Jesus, the I'm willing to give myself up to save everyone else. Char is the I symbolically take on the sins of humanity so that humanity can achieve greatness, so that humanity can elevate, if you will. Do you know if the language that Shar uses in this section is used in uh, Japanese Christian liturgy? Some of what he says was reminiscent enough of things that are part of the liturgy that I tried to look it up, and it's not from that. The word he uses actually isn't sin. It's the word for karma, goal. Huh. And he describes sort of bearing, being burdened with the karma of humanity, which is a bit different than the idea of sin. 
uh, which in the liturgy, the word they use is sumi, which also means crime. So perhaps not a Christian savior per se, but he clearly sees himself as also sacrificial, just not his life, more his humanity, whatever goodness or, or moral essence he has, uh, however he'll be remembered, being willing to sacrifice all of that for what he sees as the good of humanity. And this realization juxtaposed with his distance with Nanai, his remembrance of Lala, really makes him this romantic, tragic figure, which of course adds to his appeal for quests. One wonders if it's part of his constructed persona, this haunted, tortured figure. Certainly, coming right on the heels of that train scene, where he is treated like a savior figure, like a messiah for the people of space, and we learn then how integral that is to the propaganda of Shar, to the public-facing image of Shar, to evoke that savior myth. Unfortunately, one of the people who sees through this uh, propaganda version of Shar is Gune, <laughs> who, who is hell-bent on reforming from the inside. My read on Gune's motivations here is that he thinks somebody might need to kill Shar. Like, Shar might start threatening the colonies instead of just Earth, and somebody needs to be there, close to Shar, who can put an end to him. And Gune wants to be that guy. But he doesn't just say, Shar just uses battle to act out his frustrations. He says people like Shar. So it's not just about being a check on Shar, it's about trying to be a check on people with that kind of power. Mm-hmm and working within that organization to be in a position to try to be that check on power. But not just working within the organization, also pursuing a new type development. First, he gets the cyber new type procedure. Now he's trying to learn from Quest. Um, ironically, he wants to learn from her in the same way that she wanted to learn from Amaro. But doubly ironically, Gune's whole thing is that he's pursuing power so that he is powerful enough to stop powerful people from doing bad things with their power. Right. I do admire that he doesn't seem at all threatened or upset that Quest is such a natural. He wants to learn from her. He seems a bit sad. He doesn't think he'll ever be at her level. But there's no sort of wounded male ego. <laughs> yeah, it feels like pure admiration for her skill and power. I thought it was so interesting, the contrast they set up in this scene between Gune and Quest out on the, the balcony having this little conversation, and what really sounds like a, a kind of raucous party going on inside with a bunch of Axis soldiers and presumably some hangers-on and, and such. Which Gune finds very distasteful. Yeah, he pounds on the table and calls them all morons. And if you look at prior entries in Gundam, when do you get parties like this? Garma's Mansion in First Gundam, Dakar in Double Zeta. That's the prior context for this kind of party. They are, they are these icons of like decadence and corruption. Which all creates a tension with the very real grievances that Char lays out in his speech because most of what he says, we're all nodding along. Like, yeah, the Federation is terrible. Yeah, space noids should have self-determination and safe places to live and the colonies should be maintained better. 
And then he loses me when he says that Earth is the source of all wars. And if humans don't live on Earth anymore, there will never be war ever again. (laughs) Well, that tension exists even within like a couple of sentences in his speech, because he'll say things like, I have become convinced that we must do everything possible to prevent war. Yet he's saying this line in a speech to his soldiers in the war that he started. To hype them up for going and doing some more war. We must do everything possible to end war, even start war. And y'all know that we're not pacifists, but this is ridiculous. (laughs) His speech pays only lip service to the actual goals of this project, because he says, once we win, there will be a government for the refugees. But what kind of government? What does that mean? How will that happen? Like, But Tom, everybody knows big rousing speeches aren't where you get into the policy nitty gritty. No, Nobody wants to hear about that. Big rousing speeches are where you talk about purging your enemies, which is what he says. In the English translation, they say discipline. But the word he uses in Japanese for what he wants to do to the people living on Earth means purge. But there are two different ways of writing it that each have subtly different meanings. So it can mean purge, like to eliminate the opposition, uh, to remove an impure, unjust, or disorderly element, tearing it out, destroying it, killing somebody. Or it can mean correcting a state of injustice, impurity, or disorder, fixing the problems, correcting people, not eliminating them. And I think throughout this movie, there is a lot of inconsistency from Shar and a lot of confusion in those around him about what he's trying to do and whether he's trying to purge humanity or purge humanity. And I think that tension between the two different ideas is present in the ambiguity within this one word. Shortly thereafter, the battle begins and we get a brief scene of Adenauer Pariah on the bridge of the ship that's overseeing the surrender. (laughs) Surrender. And one of the things that has come up throughout Gundam, and I appreciate them making a few nods at it here, is the military-industrial complex. The captain of this ship wonders what all of his soldiers will do when they aren't at war anymore. And Adenauer makes some jerk like, I don't know. <laughs> he makes a crack about sending this guy to clean beaches on Earth. Right. The point being, the Federation doesn't actually have a plan for what to do with a bunch of unemployed soldiers. They haven't thought about it. They don't particularly care. There is nowhere in the economy that can absorb all those people. The Federation benefits from being at war all the time. It's good for them, actually. It helps keep the money flowing. It keeps people employed. It keeps Anaheim rich. I'm sure a bunch of them are shareholders. And it keeps everybody distracted from the real problems. Like you said when we were covering Double Zeta, they can always say, oh, it's actually Shar's fault. It's actually Haman's fault. It's actually Ayuk's fault, whatever the problem is. Oh, we would love to be able to handle that. But first, we have to deal with this army at our doorstep. And it's all lies, right? It's all, (laughs) but they're very convenient. This section also contains one of the few scenes that felt completely extraneous to me over the course of the movie, which is when Quest and Gune are confronted by the purple lipstick pilot. Resin. Resin Schneider. 
uh, over Gune being a fake new type. And uh, nothing else in the movie indicates any kind of social tension between quote-unquote real new types and cyber new types. We barely see Resin except for while she's fighting. Uh, she's not really a character with a personality or actions or much influence on the plot. Her personality is she's kind of a jerk. She has a bad attitude. She wears the same color lipstick as for Murasame. And she has a purple Giradoga. I, yeah, I mean, this is hard for me. I have to admit that all of the scenes Resin is in, she is superfluous. She could easily be replaced by any other pilot or no other pilot, and the scene would basically work the same way. And some of those scenes do not need to be in the movie. But you like her. I like her. She's <laughs> cool. I well, appreciate her grumpy attitude. She's the grumpy cat of Gundam. Then give her more to do. Yes. I have been asking for this. <laughs> but th this particular scene feels like a waste of time. I hate that you're right. Act 4, Fleet Action With Luna 2's nuclear arsenal in hand, the rest of Shar's fleet races to join him at Axis. The pilots are to prepare for another sortie, but Quest wanders onto the bridge instead. When she ignores Nanai's order to get out, she gets a slap and a telling off for her trouble. She storms off the bridge, and against Gune's warnings and protests, she takes her damaged mobile suit to find Shar. With the peace treaty off, the calm that reigned in Hong Kong has turned to chaos. Everyone believes the city will be Shar's next target. The streets are choked with fleeing citizens. The noise of cars, motorcycles, yelling and honking is punctuated by gunshots and explosions. While his mother and sister struggle to escape Hong Kong, Hathaway hides aboard the Rock Island, where he overhears that the colony fleets won't help Londo Bell fight Neo Zeon. They're worried that if they leave, they'll lose control of the colonies themselves. The small Londo Bell force must face Char alone. The boy leaves his hiding spot and tries to sneak into the hangar, but he's soon caught and hauled off to see the captain. Bright slaps his son, angry at this show of recklessness, but Amaro steps in, knowing this is really about Quest. I'm going to get her back, Hathaway vows. And at first, Amaro tries to be gentle, explaining that Char is taking advantage of Quest, using her. There won't be any tearing her away. But in the face of Hathaway's naive persistence and resolve, his face goes cold and his voice harsh. Quest can't be saved. And with an attitude like that, you'll die too. As the Londo Bell squadron closes in on Axis, Bright orders his gunners to open fire with barrage after barrage of long-range missiles. The blasts light up the darkness of space, but they are too few and too late. Char's engineers have already managed to reactivate the asteroid's massive nuclear pulse engines. Char whispers to himself, Time to go, Axis. Take your dreadful memories with you. As one thruster after another fires up, and the asteroid begins to move. Bright calls for another wave of missiles targeting Axis directly. Their conventional warheads don't have a chance against the asteroid, but hidden among the hundreds of missiles are a handful of the Audit Bureau's nukes. Less chance of them being intercepted that way. But they didn't count on Gune. 
He's on the edge of the battlefield, trying to protect Quest in her damaged mobile suit when he senses the danger from the missiles. In a moment of intense concentration, the cyber new type is able to use his funnels to intercept an entire wave of explosives, nukes and all. Not a single one gets through. If he was hoping this would impress Quest, then he hoped in vain. She used the opportunity to meet up with Char, launching into complaints about Nanai hitting her. Impulsively, Quest closes her eyes, holds her breath, opens her cockpit, and tumbles towards Char's mobile suit. He catches her in his own cockpit, admonishing her for not wearing a normal suit. But she's not interested in practical discussions. She wants to know if he'll punish Nanai. He readily agrees, but when the girl tries to leave, he holds her in place. She hasn't felt the true terror of battle yet, and it will be safer if she's with him. The battlefield teems with ships and mobile suits, the detritus of space and of destroyed weapons of war, asteroids and dummies, lurking mines and drifting wreckage, rage and fear. On the Rock Hylum, Chen operates a gun turret. Elsewhere, Londobel mobile suits bound for the Axis engines dogfight with Neo-Zeon interceptors. From a distance, Char waits and watches. In his lap, Quest shivers and quakes. The young new type can feel all of it. It feels like people are coming into me. I feel sick. Her distress is so strong, Hathaway feels an echo of it from across the battlefield. Amid the fighting, Gune manages to capture one of the Federation pilots, an ace named Keira. Keira leaves her cockpit, trying to escape. Amuro comes to the rescue, but Gune snatches her up in his mobile suit's hand. He orders Amuro to throw away his weapons and surrender his mobile suit. If he refuses, Gune will kill Keira. Surrender and I'll release her, he shouts, thinking that with the new Gundam, he could even defeat Shar. Then, Quest would choose him. Amuro seems ready to do it. He detaches his funnels and lets his rifle drift away. Gune orders his squadron to kill Amuro. They wrap the new Gundam in electrified cables, planning to kill the pilot inside without damaging the mobile suit. On the verge of death, Amuro radiates fear and pain. Quest feels it, so do Chen and Hathaway, and the Saikomu responds. In the fractions of seconds before Amuro would have died, his funnels destroy the cables binding him. Enraged, Gune carries through on his threat. He jerks Keira's body one way, then another, before casting her aside like a ragdoll. Amuro drives him off, but when he goes to retrieve Keira, he finds her motionless, her head twisted at an unnatural angle. The surviving Londobel mobile suits pull back to regroup. On the Rock Hylum, Astonaji sobs over Keira's body. They had been lovers. Watching them, Amuro tells Chen, I'm prepared to give my life to end this. Despite her breakdown during the battle, Char decides to have Quest test a new mobile armor in the next engagement. Nanai agrees and suggests sending Gune to guard her. Perhaps his jealousy and desire to impress Quest will make him fight harder. It seems Nanai's own feelings of jealousy have lingered. In a break from her usual business-like demeanor, Nanai asks Char for reassurance that he loves her. They embrace, he lays his head against her chest, and he tells her that he needs her. A mirror scene plays out inside Axis. Gune confronts Quest about her infatuation with Char. 
He warns her that Shar's relationship with Nanai is just for appearances. Shar is still obsessed with a new type named Lala, who died in the One Year War. In fact, Shar started all of this because Lala chose Amuro. Everyone knows that Shar likes young girls, and many of those girls have heard the captain mumble Lala's name in his sleep. But with the absolute certainty that only a 13-year-old can muster, Quest slaps him and leaves, calling back over her shoulder, I'll kick Nanai and Lala out of his life. I'm not sure that we're going to have too, too much to say about this section. I do have a bunch of notes about details, but mostly what happens here is a lot of fighting. And the fighting is good. It's good fighting. Um, I think especially the way they juggle all of the different storylines happening in the battle at the same time, Gune and Quess and Amuro and Hathaway and Keira and Shar, Managing all of those is really difficult, and they pull it off really well, I think. The actual, let's call it, geography of the battle, where the mobile suits are relative to each other, where the fighting is happening, the ships and axes, all of that is a little unclear, but the storylines are well established and well maintained. There is yet another reveal of a cool mobile suit thing in the form of the funnel-based shielding? Yeah, the pyramid that Amuro can form around the new Gundam with his funnels. Super cool, never explained. <laughs> well, you see, they generate an eye field, which is uh, an electromagnetic phenomenon used to control Minofsky particles. So that's very cool. And what book and or comic and or website and or magazine did you get that from? It's a combination of things. The way that it's animated makes Gune's missile interception feel so impressive. They really manage to convey with the way that they draw him and his concentration and focus and the explosions, just how difficult what he's doing is and the impressiveness of him actually achieving it, which makes it that much funnier when Quest does not care. <laughs> like he looks up to be like, Quest, look what I did. And she's already taken off to go find Char. Yeah. Um, the movie's animation for the most part is so grounded, so realistic. There are very few moments when it gets like kind of trippy and psychedelic and interior. Like that shot where we're looking straight at Gune it's just his face. He sort of looks down as he's concentrating and then he looks up as he sends the funnels out and we get um, behind his head this background of abstract color. Like that sense of the internal mindscape reflected in the animation is rare in the movie. It's great. It's fantastic. It feels so special. And it sets up that epic, massive wide shot of the asteroid and all the nukes going off in the background. One of the best looking moments in the movie. Not the only example of really standout, exceptional, surprising animation in this segment, though. The other one that I always notice is when Gune's team has the cables wrapped around the new Gundam's limbs. They send in the electrical pulse to try to kill Amuro, which is echoing when uh, McVeigh and Cassilia 
in First Gundam used the Adzam leader to try to do the same thing to Amuro way back when. Um, but the outline of Amuro gets distorted. It gets all like fuzzy and electrical when that happens in a way that never happens at any other point in the movie. That scene is so powerful because it gives every indication that Amuro is entirely willing to give up his own life for Kara. That the response of the funnels is a subconscious response. It's not something that he planned and intended. It is sort of like an instinctive level desire to live that's fighting against his higher mind desire to sacrifice himself to save other people. And Kara herself is also willing to sacrifice herself for the sake of the mission, for the sake of saving the Earth. Her storyline in this battle is about trying to get access, trying to get to destroy the engines. She has this line, she says, where she's like, I want access. And even when her group gets intercepted by the Giradogas, she doesn't really try to fight them. She tries to disengage as quickly as she can and keep heading for the thrusters, even as they're shooting at her. The relationship between her and Astonaji, which Ugh. has come up in other sections throughout the movie. We see little interactions between them, you know, back and forths and talking about spending time together when this is all over. We're already attached to Astonaji from previous series. We already know him, but he's not one of our main characters. He's not a hero new type. He's not an ace pilot or a high ranking leader. He is a kind of rank-and-file guy. And so when he and Kara experience tragedy, when bad things happen to them, it's bringing in that normal human element that we've commented on in previous Gundam series that I think First Gundam captured particularly well and Zeta and Double Zeta kind of lost. And it brings it back in, that sense of the horror of war for like rank and file soldiers. And this is not the only instance of it in Shar's counterattack. We get more of those in cockpit deaths of nameless soldiers in this movie than we have in those past two series. I think we get more in cockpit deaths for nameless characters than we actually do get death scenes for named characters. Well, the named characters' deaths happen so quickly and are not dwelled upon at all. It's a way for them to contrast the the horror of war and the, the very human cost, even when we're separated from the violence by these machines, and at the same time to emphasize sort of death as this great equalizer that when they die, it doesn't matter how important these people were or that we knew them or that they were aces or whatever. It's a death on the battlefield and people immediately moved on. The heroes die like candles being snuffed out. There's light and then there isn't. The grunts die like people. They get a last moment of pain and fear. I think Keira is a really good example of how the movie, how Gundam in general, can introduce a new character and get you to care about them really fast with relatively little screen time. I mean, in the last section, we talked about Resin and how that kind of doesn't work for her. Like, she gets introduced, some people 
like me, might feel a particular attachment to Resin, but Keira works as a character in a way that Resin doesn't. Keira like hooks you as a character. And I wonder, do you think that's just because she's attached to Astanaji and we already have a pre-existing affection for him? No, actually, <laughs> the minute you brought this up, I started working in my mind and remembering scenes with Keira in them. And she gets put into a lot of group scenes with Bright, with Amro. Astanaji's also there, but so is Chen. And she contributes to those conversations. She has things to say and opinions to offer. She is the one who catches Hathaway when he snuck aboard. They make her feel like part of this greater whole, like part of this team. And even though she never gets a lot of lines, even though she never gets big scenes to herself, that sense of her connection with everyone and those scenes that they do give her lend her a certain amount of personality and emotional weight that some of those other characters don't get. Like, other than seeing Rezin pick on Gune, do we, <laughs> does she interact with any other person? <laughs> yes, and I actually was just going to bring this up because I, I do think Rezin and Keira are a natural pair to compare. Um, they're both old type aces. They fight each other repeatedly in the movie. In fact, they confront each other repeatedly in much the same way that, say, Char and Amuro confront each other repeatedly. Um, and yeah, Keira's group scenes involve her, like, gosh, there's a touching bit. It's just animation, but when Amuro is showing them a video of the Neozeon fleet leaving, and he's like, we've been fooled, and this is how they did it, Keira comes to join the little group, and there's a bit where she's drifting in in Zero-G, and she grabs onto Chen's shoulder, and Chen grabs her hand, and they sort of, like, smile at each other, and it's a very warm, friendly, inviting action. Over on the Neo Zeon side, there is one moment where uh, Resin is about to launch and she has a brief like three word exchange with Nanai on the bridge and they both sort of snark about the operation that they're about to go do. And there is a, a sense of like a sisterhood there between the two of them. But while Keira's is very inclusive and friendly, what brings Nanai and Resin together is a mutual sense of alienation. And it's only natural that as the audience, we would feel alienated from Resin when she is so totally alienated from everything around her. Although I remember when we were watching this the very, very first time, the moment you saw Keira and Astanaji embracing and being cute together, you said, oh, she's going to die. Yep. We can't have nice things. Generally speaking, Gundam is not uh, full of happy romances. In a way, this feels like Tomino being like, hey, Gundam nerd, you liked Astanaji, didn't you? Look, he gets a nice thing. I'm going to take it away from him, and you're going to watch. I'm glad you brought up Nanai, because I had a realization as I was preparing my notes for this after, you know, like a dozen watch-throughs <laughs> of this movie. But in the scene where Quest wanders on to the bridge, and Nanai tells her off, my initial read was, oh, Quest is the sort of person who basically feels like no one can tell her what to do, and she should get to do whatever she likes, including wandering into dangerous places. Uh, and Quest is unused to any kind of discipline, and the enforcement of any kind of discipline against her feels like a punishment. 
The enforcement of any kind of rules or boundaries feels like a punishment. However, what had not occurred to me is how much of Nanai's reaction is jealousy. Does Nanai think that Quest is acting so entitled because of a relationship with Char? Does she think Quest is acting so entitled because she feels emboldened or empowered by a relationship with Char? I do think that that is the case. Although I do think that for Nanai at this point, the feeling is not that Quest has that relationship with Char, but that Quest thinks she has that relationship. And we know from what Gune says moments later that in this organization, power and position derive from your closeness to Char. Nanai has her position, and whether this is true or not, this is what people believe. Nanai holds her position because she is close to Char. Gune's talk with Quest also makes Nanai's earlier jealousy, her throwing her drink across the room and talking about how she thought he had changed his ways, make a little more sense because Gune establishes that there is at least a persistent rumor, even if we don't know whether it's actually true, that Char is frequently involved with quite young girls. Yeah. Well, and this feeds back into what Nanai said earlier about, like, I thought he had changed his ways. Exactly. That she sees this as part of a pattern of behavior. And so does Gune. And this is the emotional underpinning of that later scene when Shar and Quest have both come back from the battle and Shar and Nanai are discussing putting Quest in the mobile armor. And there's a, a venom to everything Nanai says in that scene, which is only explainable by a sense of jealousy towards Quest and a sense of uncertainty about what happened between her and Shar out on the battlefield. I mean, she asks Shar what happened, and he, of course, lies to her. One of the tragedies of Quest, and I don't know if she would have listened anyway, but the only person really trying to look out for her at this point, I mean, Hathaway would have if she had stayed on the uh, Federation side, but now that she's on the Neo-Zeon side, the only person who uh, seems to care at all about her well-being is Gune, and Gune has such obviously selfish motivations <laughs> that it's hard for her to take anything he says seriously or honestly. Again, even if he didn't have those motives, she might still ignore him, but of course she's going to be a little skeptical of a guy who wants to date her being like, that guy you're in love with really sucks. <laughs> Let yeah. me tell you all these rumors about him. Yune not approaching this in a very tactical or strategic way. But I, but I feel especially frustrated because Yune feels like the only person who tries to kind of call Quest out when she's being unreasonable. Right before their talk, she is getting into the Alpha Ajiru or trying to, and the engineers want some sort of verification from her or confirmation that she is actually supposed to be piloting it because she's very young and she's new and it's a brand new mobile armor, so... And we know Nanai is the operations officer. Shar has told Quest, promised her that she'll be the one to pilot it, but presumably that order has to come through Nanai to go through the proper channels. So here's Quest getting into an argument with these engineers, and when Gune comes over to her, she says, everyone's being mean to me. Those poor engineers just trying to do their jobs. And Gune's response to her declaration that everyone's being mean to her is sort of like, that's not it. <laughs> 
I was also thinking about the fact that Quest finds out Amuro is taken and she's like, ugh, fine. And she gives up. Shar is also taken, but Yune tells her Shar's not in love with anyone because he's in love with someone who's dead. And she hears, ah, so I've got a shot. <laughs> like you said, it's that sense of confidence and specialness that only a teenager can have. Because she hears, like, Shar is incapable of loving any living woman. And Quest is like, Except me. I could be first. I have two last brief non-quest thoughts before we move on to the next section. I have a quest thought before you give me your brief thoughts. Okay. Which is that over on the Rock Hylum, we get this conversation between Amuro and Hathaway where it's so clear that Amuro is like, this is exactly what happened to me. I have seen this before. I have been you. It's not gonna end well. She's already dead, dude. And he saw it happen to cats. And he saw it happen to Camille. How many young men will be ruined by trying to save girls from Xeon slash Neo-Zeon slash the Titans slash Sirocco? <laughs> yeah, they uh, apparently feel that the bright slap is obligatory at this point because we get a bright slap. You remember when we covered the last episode of Double Zeta, there's some slapping in it. That slapping is only in the version edited by Tomino. It was added by Tomino. It's clearly like his thing. It's very important to him. People in the fandom often make the joke about like, oh, such and such protagonist just needs a bright slap to correct their behavior, but it never works. It never works. It definitely doesn't work here. Also classic bright fashion, but even more stunning in that this is his own son. He slaps him, but he leaves the talking to Amuro. He leaves the talking to Amuro. He leaves the delivering a normal suit to Anna Hanna, who in the subs for this one is identified as Chief Hanan, but it's Anna Hanna. Um, I kind of want a redux of Bright in Zeta saying like, I can't be Camille's father figure, except with Hathaway. <laughs> Finally, it's just one line, but when they mentioned that the various colony fleets are not going to come help Londo Bell, it's one more point telling us that the Federation considers maintaining control of the colonies more important than protecting Earth. They either made this calculation some time ago and the colonies have for a long time been more important politically than Earth, or they've decided over the past few days of this fight that Earth is a lost cause. They, they cannot spend the resources to properly defend it, and so they're not going to. The Federation government totally abandoning Lhasa, moving to Londinian, all of that combined with this shows us that the Federation has run the numbers and they are convinced that the Federation can survive without Earth. And it probably can. As long as they maintain a base of control in space. This is a good point to take a moment and point out that Londo Bell is like four ships total. That's it. And the Neo-Zeon fleet is at least twice that. At least nine ships, maybe 10, 11, something like that. So the need to strike now while the Neo-Zeon fleet is divided before they reunify is so urgent because again, they're like four ships and 20 mobile suits. That's it. That's the scale of this conflict. Act 5. 
The Fall of Axis. The briefing room aboard the Rock Hylum is crowded as Bright and Amaro explain the plan. Their first goal is to disable Axis's thrusters. If this fails, it will soon reach the point of no return, where its decaying orbit will send it crashing to Earth. Then their only hope will be to destroy Axis itself, breaking it up so that any pieces that do fall are too small to render the planet uninhabitable. This will be an all-out attack, using all of their remaining nuclear weapons, and if it fails, a small group will need to infiltrate Axis and destroy it from the inside. Whatever happens, they must complete their mission before Neo-Zeon reinforcements arrive from Luna 2. In this tense atmosphere, Chen receives a letter from one of the Anaheim engineers. The idea for the psychoframe in the new Gundam, the metal embedded with particle-sized psychomu chips that amplify new type powers and resonate with nearby psychomu, didn't come from Anaheim R&D, but from Neo-Zeon. This note came with a piece of the material, a T-shaped, steely polyhedron about the size of a handgun. Chen reacts with disbelief. Why would their enemy just give them powerful, working technology? When Amuro joins her, she tells him about the Psychoframe's supposed properties, but not the rest. For his part, Amuro apologizes for worrying her with his talk of being willing to die. Between his design and her work on the building, testing, and maintenance, he's confident that the new Gundam will get him through. They kiss, and Chen, comforted, goes back to her work with a smile. On Earth, a narrow road through barren, dusty desert is bumper to bumper with evacuees from Hong Kong. An accident has brought traffic to a standstill, and when Mirai and Shaman stop to investigate, they see Axis silhouetted against the setting sun. In a bit of good news, the colony fleets from Side 2 and Side 5, plus those that escaped from Luna 2, are coming to reinforce Londo Bell. Hathaway is allowed onto the main bridge of the Rock Island to observe the fight. He is left alone as his father and the bridge crew descend to the combat bridge. On another bridge, in another fleet, Quest barges in and confronts Char, demanding to know if she is just a substitute for Lala. No one else speaks, but the crew listen intently, watching the conversation out of the corner of their eyes. Char takes Quest into the next room, I love you, she declares. That's a problem, Char chuckles. But when Quest adds that she would die for him, he tells her he'll forget about Lala and Anai. With Quest mollified, Char finds Gune before the next launch. He assures the jealous young pilot that he has no romantic interest in Quest. Another sortie, this one, the last. At first, Quest seems playful, but when she thinks of how Amuro threatens Char, she turns hostile. Before long, Amuro finds himself badly outnumbered, fighting alone against Quest, Gune, and a squadron of Giradogas. Sensing Amuro's strain, Chen realizes he needs more of the power-amplifying psychoframe. She takes a badly damaged mobile suit and goes after him. Astonaji tries to stop her and is killed when enemy fire strikes the launch pad. Leaving Haro behind on the empty bridge, Hathaway steals an unattended mobile suit. His launch is clumsy, but he is determined to save Quest. Nanai's hope that Shar wouldn't fight was in vain. He launches, 
intent on confronting Amuro. Amuro and the new Gundam have been able to withstand the onslaught. Quest struggles against the more experienced pilot, and when Gune rushes to her assistance, Amuro dispatches him with relative ease. Meanwhile, the Londo Bell ships launch their last barrage. Bashar is able to destroy all but one of the nuclear bombs before it strikes Axis. That last missile destroys a Neozeon cruiser, but it is not enough to seriously damage the asteroid. Axis has begun to slow, the first stage of its fall to Earth. Somehow, in the chaos, Hathaway finds Quest and tries to convince her to stop fighting for Shar and Neozeon. Chen senses them and, worried for Hathaway, tries to get him to leave Quest behind. That girl is dangerous! Quest fires, but the psycho frame seems to shield Chen from the blast. When Chen fires back, Hathaway blocks the shots. He tries again to convince Quest to stop, even leaving his mobile suit so she can see him floating there, but it's no use. Quest seems angry at everyone. At Hathaway for lecturing her, at Chen for being involved with Amuro, at Earth for producing egotistic men. Chen renews her attack, destroying the Alpha Ajiru and killing Quest. In a fit of anger and despair that Chen didn't try harder to avoid killing Quest and that he couldn't save her in the end, Hathaway opens fire, killing Chen. In the moment that her mobile suit explodes, a ghostly projection seems to fly forward and green light sparkles outward from the blast. The light reaches the other Federation fleets, and as it washes over them, we can hear radio chatter. Hey, shouldn't we send Londo Bell some help? Don't worry about how you'll get back. Just go, now. The light from Chen and the psycho frame permeates everything. On Earth, Mirai and Chaemin keep driving past ruins, abandoned cars, cracked roads. In India, Christina and her friends meditate on the beach, watching the setting sun. There are still children playing in the desolate streets of Hong Kong, and one asks his friends, Did you hear something? Nanai feels a pang, and suddenly knows that Londo Bell is coming. Moments later, her ship is under attack. Plans A and B having failed, Plan C commences. Federation forces land on Axis and a team infiltrates the old mining tunnels. Some are killed by explosions, others by cave-ins, but they manage to plant all of their explosive charges, and the rest of them escape back to the Rock Hylum. All the while, Shar and Amuro chase each other around, inside and outside the asteroid, arguing the whole time. Doesn't Amuro understand that Earthnoids are vermin? Why is he wasting his talents serving the Federation? Doesn't Shar understand that he is also wasting his talents? That he's taken his disillusionment too far? Remote detonation of the charges begins, and Amuro manages to throw Shar's mobile suit into the stony surface of Axis, crushing the head and sending the escape pod flying until he catches it in the new Gundam's hands. The explosives set by Bright's team break Axis in half. The front half is propelled away from Earth, but the back half will still fall. With a laugh, Shar tells Amuro that even half of Axis is enough to cause a nuclear winter. There's nothing to be done. He's won, and Amuro has lost. 
but Amuro won't accept it. He puts himself between the falling asteroid and Earth, burying Char's escape pod in the asteroid's surface. He sets the new Gundam's engines to maximum power, one mobile suit pushing back against the seemingly inexorable weight. Bright orders the Rakhilem to join the effort, but they are stuck fighting off the Rulula. Confident that he's won, Char now reveals that he gave the Psychoframe data to Anaheim, wanting to be evenly matched with his longtime rival in this, their final confrontation. His revelation is well-timed. As the asteroid hits the atmosphere and begins to heat up, the Psychoframe in the new Gundam begins to resonate with Amuro's new type powers. Light emanates from Amuro's cockpit. Monitoring the battle from aboard her ship, Nanai feels Char's life draining away. She shudders and trembles, but the others on the bridge are distracted. Federation reinforcements have finally arrived. Mobile suit after mobile suit joins Amuro to push against Axis. Horrified, Amuro urges them away. Their mobile suits can't handle re-entry, they'll die! Even some of the Neo Zeon mobile suits throw away their weapons and join the push. The battle suddenly forgotten. Some burn up, some explode. Redlined reactors rupture. Others can't hold on and tumble away, their fate unknown. Amuro feels powerless. He just wanted to show people a better way. Char blames all of this suffering on Earth and cries in his pod. Why can't Amuro understand? Green light engulfs Axis, a physical force that pushes all of the mobile suits away. Char and Amuro's psychoframes are resonating, overloaded with powerful thoughts and emotions. But the feeling that engulfs them now isn't fear, it's warmth, reassurance. They talk about quests and how Char treats people like machines. Char tells Amuro how angry he still is about Lala and surprises Amuro by describing Lala as someone who could have been a mother to him. It's the last we hear from either of them. Nanai cries out for Char. Bright, wordless, just stares. The survivors from both fleets witness the impossible. Axis shifts course. Earth is bathed in sparkling green light, cradled by the combined emotion and will of everyone who fought to protect it. Thematically, the end of this film feels very much in keeping with the other UC Gundam entries that we've watched so far. Firstly, because so much of the end is taken up with the desire to be understood. Every conversation Amuro and Shar have is the two of them trying to argue these competing sides with each other. And by the end of the film, we see both of them driven to tears by their inability to convey what it is that they really want to the other person and how painful that is to both of them. The Gundam that we've watched so far has all been long-form TV shows spooled out over between 43 and 50 episodes, uh, which allows them to build up over time 
this craving to understand, but also to show us all the obstacles that life puts in the way of that understanding, all of the crimes and the personal tragedies and the unforgivable acts that make it impossible for these two people to get over themselves, to get over what has happened, and forgive and understand. The movie doesn't really have the time to do that, although it certainly puts in a good effort to do so, but it kind of doesn't have to, because we're bringing the baggage of Shar and Amaro into the movie. Shar and Amaro meet three times in this movie, Fifth Luna, Londonian, and Axis, and every time they argue more than they fight, they try to push their ideas onto each other. But it's only here at the end when it seems like they can really hear each other. And that desire to be understood supersedes basically everything else. We said in previous sections, Shar is putting up with a lot of things that he detests. He's making sacrifices in order to further his goals. He'll be the figurehead, he'll be the puppet, the clown, if it means he can pursue this goal. He puts the goal at risk so that he can have these discussions with Amuro. He puts the whole thing, all of his sacrifices, everything he's done at risk by giving the psycho frame to Anaheim, knowing they will give it to the Federation, knowing they will give it to Amuro's Gundam. Because even more important than what he wants to achieve is this confrontation with Amuro that I do, I do believe that Char wants to win, he wants to beat Amuro, but on some level, it's also a conversation. If he just wanted to beat Amuro and he were completely confident in the rightness of his own mission, his own ideas, then why bother engaging with Amuro at all? And certainly, why would you do it fair? But he wants this conversation, he wants the argument he would truly like to convince Amuro if he could. And if they're on even footing, there is an opportunity for that to happen that there wouldn't be if they just like ambushed Amuro. Gosh, I have so many responses to that. First of all, I will say, I think in Shar's mind, with Lala dead, Amuro is absolutely the most important person in the world. Maybe given the way Shar treats other people like machines, which Amuro calls him out for and Shar readily acknowledges, maybe Amuro is the only other person in the world for Shar. Also, that decision Shar made to give Amuro the psycho frame is essentially repeated here because Amuro goes into Axis and leaves the new Gundam on the surface. Shar finds the new Gundam and he just leaves it there. You know, you asked me a couple of acts ago, would Amuro have shot Shar if he had the chance? And I said, yes, but Shar wouldn't have shot Amuro. And this is it again. If Amuro found the abandoned Sazabi on the surface of Axis, he would destroy it, and then he would go looking for Shar. Shar never even considers destroying the new Gundam. And I'm really glad you pointed out that this conversation he wants to have with Amuro is more important even than his plan for which he has been willing to sacrifice so much because that's in the song that plays during the credits. Beyond the Time is like a very overt song about Shar and Amuro in this movie. And there's a line in it where they say like, more than peace, more than justice, more than freedom, all I want is you. 
The other thematic link between Char's counterattack and these previous UC Gundam series we've watched is, I think, the weight of the status quo. Because if we think about pretty much every one of these series and this movie, the ending is that effectively nothing changes. And while watching the movie, I did not want Char to succeed, there is something intensely painful about all this loss and anguish and death and pain just to wind up in the same place we were before it all started. Yet the movie doesn't say that. The movie, like First Gundam especially, and a bit like Zeta, the movie just ends. There's no denouement, there's no final text appearing on the screen that says three days later a peace treaty was signed and the Republic of Neo-Zeon was established. It just ends. We rush into this massive confrontation, this final climactic battle. We see the miraculous moment when Axis moves away from the Earth. We see new life starting on the planet. And then it's over. What happens after this is a mystery. I feel very conflicted because Amaro states explicitly that he thinks things need to change. He wants to show people a better way. He's clearly not having much success with that. But then at the end, we have this incredibly moving scene of all these people coming together to do the seemingly impossible, to shift the inexorable weight, and they succeed through the power of their combined will. But because the movie ends the way it does, we don't know if this was a temporary uniting of the wills to prevent this one disaster, or if there will be any kind of enduring effect. There's that moment, one of my very favorite moments in the whole film, when the Giradogas, they're backed together, the three of them, backs to back. They think they're going to be attacked by all these Federation reinforcements who are racing towards them. But the Federation mobile suits just fly past them and go immediately to Axis. And the Giradogas look confused. One of them stops in the middle of reloading his gun. And then they throw away their weapons and they go to join too. And Amaro asks him, what are you doing? One of them says the fate of the Earth is in the balance. We have to do something. Five minutes ago, they were fighting and killing and dying in order to drop this asteroid. And it's not like they were confused. It's not like Char didn't tell them what was going to happen. He's very clear about that in his speech. The only explanation I can think of is that through the power of new type magic and resonating psycho frame and Chen's space tea, Amaro's will, his desire, his feelings have reached these people. And as the green light from this event spreads out across the whole world, through the whole Earth sphere, I think if you're inclined to be hopeful, to be optimistic, it's easy to imagine that this is a miraculous event and that Amaro's desire to save the world, to show people a better way, could reach everyone. And the images that follow are mostly hopeful. On top of how moving it was to see all of these people come together to try to do the impossible, I also had flashbacks to Amuro in First Gundam. It's not merely that Amuro is willing to sacrifice himself. He is continually trying to put himself in situations where his sacrifice will save everyone else and then is constantly being shown that he can't do it all on his own. When he steals the Gundam... 
one of the things that he tries to do is, oh, if I go destroy this mining facility, like I'm going to go destroy this mining facility by myself and that's going to bring the war to an end sooner. And then he finds out there are hundreds of mining facilities and this wasn't even the right one. And, and then at the end of the series, yes, he fights Char at Abawaku, but he wouldn't escape without his friends there to support him and guide him. He always wants to do it all on his own, but would the resonance have been strong enough if it were just him? Or even just him and Char? Or does it actually need all of those other people? Uh, spanning, we don't even know how much area. Maybe it's all the humans in the Earth sphere. We don't know. Talking about the energies that save the Earth and that allow all of this to happen. You know, we have these two men as savior figures. We have Char supplying the Psychoframe technology. We have Amaro supplying design. It's almost as though the Psychoframe is their child birthed by Chen. Because what brings out the full power of it is, it seems, Chen's death, right? She takes it out into space. She dies with it. All the green sparkles go out, and that facilitates what happens at the end of the film. When there is so much heavy emotion in this last chunk of the movie, it was really difficult for me that the psychoframe looks so silly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. And <laughs> I joked when we first watched the movie, you know, couldn't they have made it look cool? And then I thought, well, maybe they thought it did look cool in the same way that Americans think kanji look cool no matter what they mean. <laughs> like, ooh, Japanese characters. I wonder if someone was like, ooh, English writing. I don't think it is a T. Like, I don't think it's supposed to be the letter. I have some theories, but we'll have to um, dig into those more later. I want to talk about a few more character ends while we are here. Through repeated watchings of this movie, one of the things that hit me is how childlike Quest still is. And the fact that the, the war, the reality of it, the reality of death never really hits her in the span of this movie. She comes onto the battlefield in this last fight and Amuro describes her aura as playful. It's all still like a game. When she goes looking for Char after Nanai slaps her, she's like, oh, he's probably in the direction of those pretty lights. It's not the direction of those explosions. When she runs into a squadron of Jagans, She's just like, oh, what are those? Pew, 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 pew. It all kind of smacks of not taking any of this very seriously, which doesn't feel like nonchalance. It's not like, oh, I'm so tough and cool and I don't care about death. It's that she really doesn't understand how dangerous all of this is, how permanent. It's almost like she doesn't really get that people are dying. There's definitely some of that. You know, one of the undercurrents in the Gundam that we've watched so far is just how inherently dangerous space is, how fragile and precarious the colonies are, how difficult it is for humanity to live outside of Earth, and this persistent craving for a return to Earth that has been made impossible largely by the Federation and by humanity's collective abuse of the natural environment. And I think one of the messages of Gundam, especially when Tomino is in charge, is space is not all it's cracked up to be. We need to protect the Earth because it is the real home for humanity. 
But Quest in this movie, she takes to space so automatically, so innately, so skillfully. She has no fear of it. Its hostility doesn't seem to touch her. And I wonder if Quest in some way represents the hope for humanity to truly embrace life in space, to truly make space home. And then how sad it is that Char takes that hope and sticks it in a mobile suit and sends it to die. That's a much prettier read on it. I would have assumed she was meant to be a sort of stand-in for the youth of today who are out of touch with reality. <laughs> I think that's at least as probable. And that's kind of what's beautiful about youth, isn't it? That sense of hope and possibility, which may or may not actually be attainable. And that gulf between what teenagers believe is possible and what adults have been forced to accept. In the last section, you talked about how deaths of named characters, bigger characters, pass in a flash. And in some ways, Hathaway's loss of innocence, if we want to call it that, is treated the same way. It's treated like a death. He kills Chen, which I was shocked by our first watch through. I was stunned that that happened. I can still remember being shocked when I watched it for the first time more than a decade ago. And we only see him very briefly twice more after that. After Axis is broken up, there's a ton of debris everywhere and it's quite dangerous and he calls out for his father. And then during the credits, we see him floating by himself. And he looks so haunted. I know he ends up getting a movie, like I know he ends up being a character later. I assume he never tells anyone what happened. No one would know that Chen was killed by him and not by Neo Zeon or Debris or whatever else. And he lives with what he's done for the rest of his life. No one in Gundam ever gets out unpunished. I don't know. I don't think Shar ever got much of a comeuppance. Shar didn't make it out alive. So this is a, another point. It is not made explicit that Shar and Amaro are dead. In fact, it is kept, I think, quite carefully ambiguous. My assumption was that they did that on purpose so that they could bring them back later if they wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> like any good franchise, don't kill off a good character if you don't have to, not irrevocably. You just got to maintain the mystery, right? When I first watched it, I assumed that they had both died. I assumed that they had not. Then I think we are evenly split. <laughs> you and think? We shall, and we you're shall, not sure? <laughs> not positive. We'll need to carefully maintain ambiguity about whether or not we are evenly split for the benefit of the podcast long term. I would be remiss if I did not point out that this segment of the movie contains one of the franchise's better known English language memes. Although the translations that we have do not. When Amuro is pushing Axis back, he says, New Gundam wa date janai. And it's translated in English in the version that we have as you're underestimating the new Gundam or don't underestimate the new Gundam. However, it entered fandom meme lore as this new Gundam isn't just for show. Nice. <laughs> Is that all you have to say for one of Gundam's most hallowed memes? As a noob, I care not for hallowed memes. I've definitely seen people use the such and such isn't just for show phrasing, but I didn't know what it was from. 
It's just like a funny thing. I don't know. <laughs> but th- this happens with a lot of Brutal. memes. The thing that surprised me with the Amuro, I'm doing something extremely wicked, is that the humor of it felt like it got undercut immediately by his line afterwards. Like it's funny as a standalone in a meme, but once you have it in context in the movie, it doesn't feel half as funny. Yeah, I mean, the line from Zeta, I came here to laugh at you, is the same way. He says like, I came here to laugh at you. Is that what you want me to say? Is that what you expect from me? I'm not going to say that. Right. It's actually quite a lovely scene and a good line in that context. And then when you take it out of context, it's hilarious. That is often the way with Gundam. Did you notice that when Amuro is first engaged with Gune, Quest, etc., he's actively trying not to kill them? Like there's one point where he fights some Giradogas and he just shoots them with his Vulcans, but he targets cameras and weapons and leaves the cockpits intact. That is an extremely Amuro thing to do, and I am not at all surprised. I can't remember if I noticed or not. And it comes back to bite him in a way, because if he had just dispatched Quest and Gune faster, right when he first encountered them, as he probably could have done easily, then Chen would still be alive and Hathaway would not have done the bad thing. Hathaway would still have dead girlfriend trauma, but that's a whole different category. In the Gundam universe, you can find a support group for that. Is there a support group for deaths of long-standing secondary characters? Because Astonaji's death hit me real hard. Astonaji. He had just been through so much already. Yeah and had been comparatively long-lived by Gundam standards. It happens so randomly, so casually. You almost don't know that it's happened. I actually went back and went through with it slowed down. And if you slow down enough, he's got like a huge chunk of metal through his chest. So I'm pretty sure he didn't live through that. Yeah. And he just like floats by as Hathaway is getting into this mobile suit to go try to save Quest. That shot of Axis passing in front of the sun gives me chills every time. It's really, really good. And the shots that immediately follow it, everyone getting ready for the final confrontation, Amuro pulling away from Chen to go into battle for the last time. Sets up that sense of impending doom. And the sad strings playing. This isn't even in this section, but it was a detail I noticed and I feel like I want to talk about with you. When the Rulula is leaving Sweetwater, after Char's speech, so when it's going off on this final mission, there's a scene that shows a window overlooking the hangar, and there's a bunch of people standing there and they all salute as the Rulula leaves. But like half of them are wearing Federation Army uniforms. Huh. Yeah. Do you think ex or traitors, or what do you think is going on there? I mean, if I had to guess, I would say that when Shar took over Sweetwater, there was probably already a government in place, Federation-aligned local government, and that they probably signed up with Shar when he got there, and it's probably those people. But I would expect them to change uniforms. So... Another possibility is that whoever drew them just messed up. Also very possible. Because if I'm remembering the same scene, they're not drawn in much detail. No. They're kind of vague outlines of people through a distant window. And so somebody who's like, oh, fill in some background 
military officials, and somebody did, but accidentally made them fetties. Or it's possible that the sense of Shar's rebellion as not really being directed against the Federation in a meaningful way, not really being calculated to actually destroy the Federation, is more true than it seems. That no matter how many Federation officials Shar kills, they're just replaced by other, more Federation officials who happen to be on the opposite side of this little conflict. Little conflict. Tell that to the people on Earth, man. Camille says something at the end of Zeta that I think is relevant here. He says, essentially, life is the most important thing. Protecting life has to trump everything else, because as long as there's life, there's hope. And I think that's the message at the end of this movie. We see in those final scenes, new life, the baby crying, an old woman in her bed and young children. It's a new cycle. And beyond the time goes back to this idea, to the Mobius loop, to the constant cycle of our lives. And this movie is all about cycles. The repeating cycle of Amuro, Lala, and Char that then becomes Hathaway and Quess and Char. And it's all bittersweet. Hathaway looks stunned. Quess's friends are walking on Earth and they look back over their shoulders at the light in the sky where she died. Parts of the Earth are barren. Life is going to be hard, but it will continue. And then we go into the credits and beyond the time plays. And it's a song about being linked together, being linked to the earth in an endless cycle of love and pain, just hoping for the day that we can learn how to forgive each other. Because that's how ultimately we break the cycle. Not with one final monstrous sin to end all sins, but with little acts of forgiveness and love in the face of the pain of a difficult life. Next time on episode 4.3, The Cobalt Blue Planet, we discuss environmentalism, Char's plans for the Earth, and tell us how you really feel. But actually, tell us how you really feel. Char's carbon footprint. Uh, the term is impact crater. Earth mother complex. Supreme leader knows best. The Goldilocks window. Mother 2, Earthbound. Blunt Instruments. Make a desert and call it peace. And, moreover, the Earth must be destroyed. You can change your destiny. You know, in space, every species is invasive. We don't know that. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The music used in this episode included Cold War Echo and November, both by Kai Engel. Garden of Untamed Roses, Act 2, by Lloyd Rogers. Honest Wave, by PC3. Dangerous Tonight, by Vivich. Immersive, by Sergei Cheremisinov. 
and the placing rule and noise to flange tang, both by Small Colin. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. The World Health Organization says that fully vaccinated Gundam fans can now share their wrong Gundam opinions on deserted street corners. So get out there and shout, My dudes, it is only a two-hour movie. How could you talk about it for three hours and still not be done? We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. The Wikipedia page for Kisho Tenketsu is appallingly bad. <laughs> I was surprised. I'm sure it's been machine translated. All right, you ready for me? I am so ready for you. The long session yesterday was a little rough. I think that's also part of why I was like, Okay, great speech. We're done. And you're like, no, but what? Did, but what did you think of it? And I'm like, it doesn't matter. Can we just be done recording? That'll do, pig. That'll do. Oink oink. <laughs>